Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the big show, the Biblical Rogues Gallery. It's Thursday night. We're going to talk about the Book of Romans, and we're going to actually tonight get right into it. But before we get right into it, we're going to almost get right into it because I want to introduce the panel. First of all, as always, I have with me Braxton Hunter. Braxton, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to be here with you, my trusted sidekick on your the own adventure. <laughs> right. All right. Well, they know who we are, this Trinity Radio. So let's let's go to MJ Jackson of the Urban Apologetics Institute. No, it's the Urban Christian Institute. Yeah, that's what I meant. Get it right. Get it right. You should know better. You're supposed to be my friend. <laughs> like that's that's so messed up. MJ, uh, I would have made this. Sake. I would have never let this happen to you. Yeah. See, that's why Nick has replaced you. Just kidding. <laughs> that was Braxton. That was me. I'm old. I'm allowed to have memory. I turned 47 in March. I'm allowed to have memory. I'm, I'm having memory issues. Okay. Well, tell us about MJ. MJ, tell us about MJ. <laughs> well, uh, I have a YouTube channel. Uh, my friend up there in the right corner has helped me build that youtube channel so it's kind of like his channel too i'm gonna start allowing him to run you know run the controls every once in a while uh so he's not doing (laughs) so he's not so 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 he can get in on some of the some of the logistics of it but uh usually me and uh, chris samuel up there in the right um we engage uh cultural issues uh political theology issues regarding the gospel and we just want want to challenge uh both listeners believers and unbelievers on what the gospel is and how it should affect every area of society and so that's the that's the purpose for the channel occasionally i will choose violence on yes you like to choose violence against braxton and i our co-workers but that's yes (laughs) oh absolutely uh I, i do like to uh to hold uh uh analytic theologians feet to the fire uh so they say and uh, just challenge my peers to think more uh biblically and you know one day you know i'll i'll be colleagues with some of y'all employees so you know we can it, it'll be just friendly fire at that point all right and next up we got the new testament theologist back again who said oh i'm not going to be able to do this and he's two weeks in a row and he'll be here next week of course i'm so pleased and it's it's called being a parent of a precocious almost four year old. So, well, Nuts can sit in for you anytime. He probably oh, anytime. anytime. He's probably got more to say than you do anyway. Oh yeah, he's reading now. Did you know that? He's Fantastic. reading books. Is like he, if I picked up this, hard? is he reading? If I, picked, your... if I picked up this and had to read a, a sentence, he'd probably be able to read it, minus the German. Nice. But yeah, I am uh, Nick. I'm the New Testament theologist on YouTube. I'm an interim senior pastor at First Baptist Church at Palos Verdes in the greater Los Angeles area. A PhD student at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, under a certain Michael Byrne, who uh, has seemed to crawled uh, into Pritchett's ear and can't make him stop talking about anything else, which I, lo- I love the, the bromance that's blossoming there. I, Michael uh, Byrne loves me. Michael Byrne, when I when I... I'm going to text him and ask him if he knows who you are. Let's see. He does because he he got trashed by a master's seminary professor, and I started clowning that professor on Facebook, and and, and he he was absolutely over the moon about it. 
because I, I, I wrote a whole little spiel and I, it was like one of those Baptist things where it said, I affirm and we deny kind of thing. And the guy said that he was British. And I was like, I affirm that, uh, Michael. Burton oh, was yes. Really that was, um, he wasn't masters. Now I don't know where he is. I, I, yeah. I, I but know I, said, I, I deny that he's British. And anyway, he got a kick out of it. So we've, we've been buddies ever since, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Will Hess hey, of the church split. How you doing? Good, man. How are you? Yeah. Old. I know. It's okay. You can't help it. It's part of the gig. Just keep waking up. Uh, my name is Will Hess. I'm with The Church Split. Uh, we talk about divisive issues in the church. We strive for unity, but we strive for unity via thick skin and intellectual toughness because we think that in order to find truth, you risk offending people, and that's just the nature of it. So we should be okay mm-hmm. with being challenged and to challenge ourselves and to be challenged and to challenge you. So if any of that sounds like something you'd like to discuss as far as theology or apologetics or cultural issues are concerned, feel free to join us at the church split. Um, I did recently uh, finish my degree with Trinity and I'm hoping to pursue further, further higher education. Although um, Nick, my hair is so better than yours. There you go. And tonight we have a special guest with us, which I hope this is the first of many appearances. We have Chris Samuel, the apologist in Detroit. How you doing? Tell everyone who you are. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for having me. So yeah, I'm the apologist in Detroit. Used to practice classic apologetics. Nowadays, I'm much into like still critical critique for the church and kind of um, cultivating you know theology for practice. Uh, that's that's kind of what I do. So I do a little bit of YouTube with that. Apparently, some of my musings caught the attention, theological musings caught the attention of uh, Pritchett here. And uh, that's how I ended up. But I'm going to be able to uh, uh, share and, and join in you guys discussion in the text today. So, so yes, all, and apparently, apparently I just got promoted to first lieutenant. And I might get the get the seat of the enterprise real soon. I just well, found this out like five minutes ago. Yeah, I wanted to say that the best content on MJ's channel is the videos that have you, MJ, and me on them. Not the ones with Nick Quint on them, but the ones that I'm on there talking to you guys. That's the best content. But yeah, since you don't have a channel to subscribe to, everyone go subscribe to MJ's channel, uh, the Urban Christian Institute. (laughs) Well, I did go. put actually some links in the description uh, for Chris as well, the ones that I'd seen him share elsewhere. So people can investigate his ministry through those links. I think there's a blog. There is yes. the YouTube channel, uh, though he hasn't posted in a while there, it looks like. And then uh, his Facebook, if, if you want to follow him there to the extent that he shares ministry stuff there. It looks like he did when I was over there. Um, I want to say something real quick based on what's on the thumbnail because uh, I think it's a good time to say what this video is, is uh, a look at the book of Romans. And we're going to walk through the book of Romans with um, chasing every theological uh, issue that comes up, examining it from all the possible uh, perspectives and try to really get a deep understanding of the book of Romans. But based on what's on the title and thumb, uh, that wasn't Chris, even though his face is real big on the thumb, bigger than all the rest of us. That's because he's our, our special guest tonight. He said, he said in the chat, he said, it looks like I'm a special guest or something. Well, you are our special guest. You're special to us. But, uh, also, uh, but I wanted people to know that that quote that says the title, that's from me because it's the case that I misunderstood something about a verse in this 
passage. And in a few moments, as we move through the text, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more. I know already that we're going to hear a lot more about the verse that I think I didn't fully understand for a long, long time. It's thanks. So I'm just going to go ahead and share real quick a little bit about that to kick us off. Jonathan shared with me a book uh, by David DeSilva that I mentioned last week uh, called um, Honor, Purity, Kinship, some variation of those terms by David DeSilva. Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. And I think it's some very, I always get the variation wrong of the words, but uh, it's about the honor, shame culture of the first century uh, world. And when it ha- these individuals, these groups functioned in such a way that there were in groups and there were out groups. And so you had shame or honor based on which group you were in from the other perspective. So the Jews were shamed in the eyes of the Greeks and the Greeks were shamed in the eyes of the Jews. And the Christians found themselves in this situation where as the in group out group situation was, they were in um, the out, they were on the outs with these other groups that they've been part of. And now they're, they have a new in group and that in group is one that is shamed in the eyes of the Jews and the Greeks but it has honor in the eyes of the king. And so to say something like, I am not ashamed of the gospel, though we have all probably drawn some some great um, um, boldness from that text and a reminder that that's how we should be. It's also the case, and this is what kind of revolutionized the way I think about things when I read the Bible and what it means for me to say that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It means that I am fully recognizing and accepting that I will probably receive shame in the eyes of many, many other groups around me. And boy, are we living in a time right now in the Western world where that is going to be true for people that still believe in biblical Christianity. And so um, it revolutionized that in that now I see that that I'm, I am now uh, shamed in their eyes. I can expect to be shamed. Well, Jesus already told us that. But, that, but I have honor in the eyes of a far greater uh, someone far greater and that far greater, this far greater gaze comes from our father in heaven, the Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have honor where it really matters. And that just kind of gave me an ownership in the gospel and a boldness that I never had before. And now, uh, since we've gone through all of that and we're going to hear more about that, and I'll talk more about that when we get to the relevant portion as we're walking through this today. But now we, I, I feel like I'm, I'm being outshined a little bit by a new face that has appeared. And that's Nick's boy. And we're glad to see him here with us today. Hey, everybody wave. Hey. <laughs> all right. See, they see you, buddy. They see yeah. you. All right. So now, Jonathan, with that in mind, take it away. Yeah, let's go uh, straight into the text. Our text tonight is Romans 1, 8 through 17. And so I always call on somebody to read. So if you can pull it up on the PowerPoint, I think I'm going to bug Will um, to to read our text for this evening. And then we'll start breaking it down. All right. So Romans 1, 8 through 17 says, "For First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine." Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now. In order that I might have a 
have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and also to the Greek. For the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Yes, that is our text. If Braxton, you want to go to the next slide if you're still around. But um, before that, I, I'd like for us to put a poll in there because last week somebody complained that I put the ESV on the, I mean the CSB on the PowerPoint. So I want to poll, uh, give them the, some options. Like uh, first off, got to have the KJV in there just to irritate Will um, from his fundamentalist background. Uh, the ESV, the NASB, or stick with the CSB. So put a poll in there and we'll we'll do the Elon Musk thing and I'll abide by the poll and make everyone happy. Just so you're aware, I love the KJV. I just don't like the King James only is. Yeah, so or, or we could just translate it together. God's My original Greek. script. What, My what Greek was, is trash. You don't want me to do quick, that. Real quick, what was the poll with the two versions? And the po- what, are you, what are you asking again? See, which version should we put on the screen and read from? The CSB like we have been, the KGV the ESV or the NASB. Oh my gosh. Okay. The, the KJV, the CSB, CSB, NASB. That's the one you don't even have to ask them. Or the, or or, the NBT, the Nick bogus translation. You can put, (laughs) I'm just kidding. All right. So, This section that we just read tonight, um, if you know anything about uh, where things are in New Testament scholarship, they've kind of recognized patterns in these epistles to where uh, they kind of map on to the rhetorical handbooks in the Greco-Roman world, starting like with Aristotle and then going through people like Socrates and Quintilian and other writers. Um, It was a highly rhetorical culture. And they noticed that once you get past the epistolary prescript, that's um, (coughs) these epistles so to speak kind of follow these rhetoric conventions now while some people have gone way overboard with that some people don't give it its due attention and so a lot of scholars um craig keener and others are kind of landed that it's been overall a net positive to start looking at things like this though you don't want to get too carried away from it um but People along the lines of Ben Witherington, for example, um, he would he would say he would push back and, and say that when it comes to the conventions of epistolary writing, those those work, those conventions came later and consolidated after the first century. So it's best to stick with this. So there's a whole debate around that. But we're going to take kind of, I guess, more or less a mediating position, or at least I am. But I kind of lean towards the fact that they are basically deliberative rhetoric for the most part um, after once you get past the epistolary prescript. And so you could basically, according to the conventions of Greco-Roman uh, rhetoric in, in what's called the disputation or disp- uh, or whatever, you, you have this setup, and the first parts of it would be what's called the exordium, and that's where you announce your subject and state your purpose and you establish your credibility with your audience and you appeal to the shared ethos between you and the audience. And in fact, 
a Thanksgiving type statement, even if even in the form of a prayer in, in Paul's terms, would be accounting for that in normal speeches. So that that's not, not unusual for it to be in the form of a Thanksgiving to kind of establish a, a, a rapport with, with the audience. Now, the narratio is going to give in a narrative account of the subject or subjects that are going to be outlined and argued for subsequent to this introductory portion of the letter. And so if you're trying to find out what the letter of Romans is about, you'll find that some of its subject matter um, is briefly introduced in the narratio, but the main thesis statement is what's called the propositio. And it's like the summary statement and the, and traditionally in, in the format follows the narratio and that thesis statement, every single argument Paul makes is going to point back to that. And all the arguments are going to sit around uh, the things that are kind of headed, you know, giving a, the audience a heads up in verses 11 through 15. So that's the way that we've split up the text. And so when we start looking at the different sections there, um, we're going to see how all this plays out. So, Nick, if you want to go from there, if you want to add any two cents about about that now's your chance before we get into the text uh i i don't object to any of the uh, the rhetorical stuff i I'm, I'm a huge fan of what say stanley stowers or what Stan, uh ironically they're both stanley's stowers and porter and timothy have done. yeah and timothy george and others mm-hmm. a lot of different people on that i i find it largely fairly helpful as kind of a way of constructing Romans. Um, it doesn't really tell you, it doesn't give you any added meaning theologically, but it does tell you where kind of the, the where the argument kind of is going. And just so we all, we're all aware, we're not saying that this is a hard and fast rule, but these are principles that we, we see kind of generally throughout ancient rhetoric and ancient literature. Um, here, and I think Paul mir- mirrors that um, fairly well. Um, and, and a lot of these two, there is overlap conceptually, theologically, linguistically, um, and so forth. But it's just a way, it's not, it's not a way of dividing things. It's a way of kind of helping us understand kind of flow and structure versus actually telling you what the text is saying. So that's where that's, I I think it's a valuable tool in that sense, but it, you know, like all good things, it has its uses. Yeah. uh, Don't expect your car to fly you to the moon. That's all I'll say. Let somebody else chime in real quick before we go to the next slide or not. What what do y'all make of this rhetorical stuff? Um, <laughs> I think that it is uh, good to know. Um, if you're gonna make, I think if you're gonna make a career out of it, uh, you know, teaching maybe for Trinity or something like that, uh, is is really good to know because you got a lot of socio rhetorical classes. Um, but you know, I am interested in like you know how it helps me establish what everything means. So I guess I'm a pragmatist like that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, cash value question, Pritchett. What would you say for the average person in the pew? Is there a cash value of understanding this kind of content? Uh, Absolutely. Because you can get lost knowing this structure, especially the purpose of uh, the dispositio and, and the, how they structure uh, speeches in the ancient world, you can break these down into the sermons and acts or everything else. And once you can start pinpointing these different aspects, you can see what are they going to be talking about and what is that thesis statement. Once you find that thesis statement, 
And I think people already knew with a book like Romans that 16 and 17 is a powerhouse statement anyway. So that seems to be a thesis. But when you're going through a long letter, and this is Paul's longest letter, you can get lost in the weeds sometimes in your exegesis trying and forget that it's got to relate back to this stuff. These are these are his purposes in writing that's spelled out in the ratio and then in the thesis statement. And so if you're not careful, some of your exegetical decisions can veer off the course because you're not matching them back to Paul's intent because he, him or Tertius or whoever, they're, they're trying to structure this in a way that's going to be the most compelling because Paul does want to, there's three branches of, of rhetoric and Paul is using deliberative rhetoric because he does intend to persuade in this letter. He's wanting to win people over to his perspective. So I think it's helpful in that sense that if you can't relate the various sections of Romans back to these verses, you might have gone off. Okay. All right. Helpful. So let's take a look at the exordium. Yeah. So one of the things that, that struck me is, you know, Paul always, he says first, and then he never gets to a second, right? And that's kind of the same thing that happens in, in Romans 3, 2, where he says, first, they were entrusted with the very words of God, and then he never gets to a second, right? At least not officially until you get to Romans 9, uh, 3, where he lists off all the other benefits. That, so it's kind of interesting that he says first, and then, you know, just kind of leave it at that. Yeah, before you go on to the next bullet point, um, Mr. Phil Fox says, Prime, are you saying that the entire letter of Romans points back to these two verses? Yes. And Amber says um, about the previous point that we were talking about just after MJ, not using the fancy nerdy language, but teaching the basic ideas can really help people read the Bible better. I've been using it with my study group, and they have grown so much from understanding it. Well, praise the Lord. So, uh Nick, do you do you agree with that that the whole book points back to these, or anybody anybody in the group that wants to, uh, d- is this agreeable? Uh, I mean, I, I think so. Um, I would, I would push. I, I would, I would argue that probably Romans um, two through four, the uh, the installation of Christ as Son of God and power by resurrection from the dead. Uh, is kind of the you might say the the, the tip of the spear, and th- these two verses are kind of the the rest of the spear, so to speak. If you're doing like a needle and you're threading something, I was I was homeschooled, so I was around sewing all day. So the tip of the spear goes through, and you pull the rest of it through. The rest of it through is those two verses, and everything seems to kind of flow around those two verses, at least at a thematic kind of conceptual level. But without the resurrection of Jesus, as Paul says in the very beginning, you don't have an epistle to the Romans to write at all because you don't have a church in Rome because Christ is not risen from the dead. So we, we want to keep that in mind as well. Yeah, and I'm sure since we're about to get into the content uh, of, the, of the passages and not just this organizational discussion, I'm sure that people will have more comments. Does anybody have anything else they want to chime in at this point? Just can't wait. Well, yeah, sure. But I think the one thing that always helps me with Romans is, one, when you consider, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I mean, just the cost of it was a lot to just write this sort of thing, probably. And so I don't think any of it was by accident. So and Paul almost seamlessly flows from topic to topic. But he's constantly planting the seeds and they're constantly kind of like flowing in and back on themselves as a Pharisee would in the first century. So even though the structure seems 
for I think a lot of non-viable nerds, they don't see the importance of it. But when you get into it, you actually just see the why he's doing this because it is uh, this social rhetorical presentation to persuade. But in order to do that, he constantly is planting seeds and circling back to them. And I think, and this is more, I agree with NT right on this part. I think this wasn't something that he just wrote flippantly. I think this is probably something he practiced over time. Uh, similar speeches that he'd give when uh, explaining what the gospel of Christ was and stuff like that. So I think we see some of his teachings of his general, maybe orations now finally kind of being actually written out. So even though it might seem like it's not that big of a deal, but if you understand how these things do circle back, uh, it will help bring clarity to keeping you anchored instead of getting some really strange theological beliefs because you weren't anchored in those things. So, yeah, this is this is what I like to call the Braxton Hunter portion of the letter, <laughs> because I mean, because Braxton is the 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 good cop around Trinity Radio. And it, like the first thing he wants to do is, is like, I thank God, my God through Jesus Christ. Right. So so that God is, of course, the God that's shared between him and his audience. He's like through Jesus Christ uh, for all of you. because and, and he's like trying to compliment them, saying the news of your faith is all over the world. Right. And of course, it probably just means the Greco-Roman world. But Rome being the center of the empire, um, it seems like he's also tipping them off. Maybe that, by the way, um, that means everyone because you're you, you're so renowned. Uh, and news is, is everywhere that that you've got eyes on you. And we know from having the benefit of everyone's read Romans. Right. But if you're hearing it for the first time, you can see how Paul is kind of setting up that. Uh, yeah, the news of your faith is being reported and all of that. And, and by the way, that means people are watching you. And Paul knows and they probably know that there are problems in the church that Paul has to sort through. And so I think that while it's a compliment, it's one of those Braxton Hunter compliments that's also going to remind you of something that you need to be aware of. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> what would you have said to them, Jonathan, if you just opened up? I would always start the way Paul started. Give me like, money. Thank you. <laughs> no, I would just start ripping into him. Like, like, but see, but Paul was the founder of the Church of Galatians. He's got to do this uh, because I think he's walking a tight tight rope because he wasn't the founder of these churches at Rome but yet at the same time he's got to he, he's got to establish authority but it's an authority that they will uh recognize and and, and they have reasons we talked about this in the reasons to not trust Paul because Paul's got to clarify certain things that they've heard about him we know that from Romans 3 and as why don't they say as some have slanderously said that we said let us do evil so that good may happen you know so they the, he knows what he's trying to establish here, but he's got to walk a tightrope. Well, it almost seems like he's uh, approaching them like brothers or sisters more than anything, right? Like he's not coming in like the big authority figure. Um, yeah. So that's just something that's kind of funny. His tone is very different in Romans compared to like when he's kicking in the door in Corinthians. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is applicable for pastors, especially, and then itinerant speakers. I think everyone on this panel is an itinerant speaker at some point um, where you're going into an audience and the, and whoever your host is, whether it's a host church or whatever has teed you up that they'll have things that they sometimes come to you and say, this needs to be addressed. These people need to hear your met. I know that you talk about this subject. They need to hear this message and you want them to get the message across, but you know that there's a problem. Uh, and you know, or at least the pastor has informed you that they want 
you to do their, the pastor's dirty work on some of these issues that they want you to touch upon. And so there's a lesson here about trying to, you know, ingratiate yourself to a, to a audience that doesn't know you, or especially if you have an online presence, they may know you. And some people may have heard things about you going in that may, they may be uncomfortable with. Oh yeah. And, and he, and if he's ingratiating himself in Acts chapter 17, you know, he like, I've heard you're very religious. I've observed your <laughs> objects of your worship. It's not a bad idea to ingratiate yourself to your crowd, unless you think he was being snarky there, which he could have been. Which I think he was being snarky. <laughs> it was not a compliment, right? I mean, Luke tips us off in that in Acts 17 where it says, yeah, you know, the people from Athens and then every single person that ever goes there, they just want to sit around and talk about something. New. Yeah, that's a, that's a dig, <laughs> right? They're taking digs at Athens. Um, but yeah. So they're taking digs. Is that what you said? Yeah, they're getting their little shots in for the for the- Theophilus and whoever Crazy. else. Yeah. <laughs> okay yeah he didn't, say, he didn't say anything else besides that yeah i'm <laughs> glad to hear it well i mean yeah okay yeah anyway, just move along move along yeah Nothing moving along here. you know paul calls on god as his witness here he's done that in other texts that uh, you can see second corinthians 123 philippians 1 8 first thessalonians 2 5 and that is to testify to his truthfulness which he has also done you know, and that that's kind of a thing that that um it doesn't get you don't you don't have a a bigger you know audience than God, right? You don't have a bigger witness than God. So once you evoke that, you know, and of course in the Greco-Roman world, they probably thought if you know the gods take it personally if you aren't telling the truth in their name, that you could get smited or whatever, and they probably would as you know, that that's kind of the custom there. So, you know, Paul's calling on God as his witness. So he's trying to pick the highest thing that he can and, and say, this is, this is how dead serious. Like, I mean, we flippantly do that with like honest to God, you know, but I mean, Paul, I think means it, you know? Yeah. That's that. Yeah. It's obvious. He's trying to appeal to the highest authority he can because he really wants them to believe him. Okay. So, uh, my spirit, yeah, when, when he talks about my spirit, there's like some debate whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news, right? That's the first evocation of, you know, the gospel here. Um, what does he mean by my spirit? Because the, 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 the commentaries kind of give several different options. I limited it to four because some of them sounded almost similar to, to the four that I listed. But um, what is he talking about here? Or what do y'all think he's talking about here? A, the spirit of God in Paul. B, some kind of spiritual service that he's 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 performing in 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 his uh you know presentation. Um, is he just trying to make a statement that he's sincerely or wholeheartedly doing this, or is he talking about like his spiritual side versus his material side? What does he mean you by could, my you could argue for a decent combination of of several of these? Um, I think the one, I mean, I would take it, Latruo, they're, you know, to serve, to minister, to render kind of a priestly service, you know, religious service, kind of that sort of verb, um, is, 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 will come back again and later in Romans, specifically Romans 12 through 15, where Paul would seemingly use priestly language to describe his vocation to the Gentiles. So that could be a little seed that he's dropped now and we'll talk about later. Uh, but 
uh, for whom I serve in my spirit through the gospel or in the gospel of his son. And so the my spirit, if it was just spirits, um, it probably and it didn't have the the, pro, uh, the pronoun there, the my, you would, you could say it's probably referring to the Holy Spirit or something like that. But the fact that it's my spirit and he does this through the gospel of his son probably suggests that this is probably not a Trinitarian formula. formula. This is probably Paul's referring to the spirit in the sense of having will or agency in terms of actually what he's doing. Uh, and the preposition through the through my spirit makes sense, you know, instrumental, you know, sort of thing. So you would just say it's, he's doing priestly service to God through Jesus Christ, proclaiming the gospel of his son to God. Um, and I, I, whatever combination fits that, that seems to be what the context is. It doesn't seem to be a reference to the Holy spirit as it is in Romans one. Yeah. Because three and four. like in Romans eight, he says the spirit of God testifies with our spirit kind of thing. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering because it's, like you said, it's plausible that he's talking about, he can refer to the Holy Spirit as mine in the fact that he's indwelt, but I, I, I kind of lean away from that too, but I'm not dogmatic. Yeah. Well, and you have to ask what the how you take um, the preposition N, which is is notoriously flexible. Is it agent? Is it causal? Is it uh, instrumental or agentival? And, and here, the fact that it's my spirit probably tilts it away to Paul, unless he's claiming the Holy Spirit for himself, which... <laughs> You know, he could be doing, I wouldn't be surprised. Paul can do whatever he wants. It's, it's his it's his paper to burn. But my sense is, you know, when you, he says, I serve in my spirit through the gospel of his son, seems to indicate that it's probably a reference to himself or to his own sort of agency in what God is doing as the one who's set apart by God for the gospel and stuff like that. Yeah. So Any which of these, it could be a combination. Which do you reject? I would I would accept uh, my spirit meaning I think that's a my spirit that is Paul's referring to his himself uh, and a combination of spiritual service so probably a combination of those two I mean you could put sincerely or wholeheartedly underneath within Paul's spirit he's not doing this insincerely he's very you know clear about that so my I don't I think the one I would reject very strongly is the spirit of God and Paul I'd probably reject that it's it's not implausible but I would reject spiritual side versus uh, material side I don't I don't think that's warranted by the context the, the text so doesn't seem to be asking that sort of question with spiritual side versus material side are we saying like he's got the the physical effort he's putting out and exerting in the physical world as he's carrying things out and then also some sort of internal thing uh, which could refer to the the spirituality or the spiritual things that are happening as he's preaching or just his prayer or all the above well, it'd be like when you over say, non-physical my, things. my soul magnifies the lord you know what i mean like my soul magnifies the lord it's it's not you're not making a metaphysical claim you're making a personal claim you know you're making yeah. a claim that i am doing something and here um i i think it fits very nicely with what was previously mentioned just i'm i'm doing this through the gospel or for the gospel or through, by the by the gospel of his son rendering priestly service to the father who is my witness and so it kind of recapitulates a little circle there um, yeah I, that's how I, that's how i take it i could be wrong that's that's my sense of what the text well, is one of the reasons why i wanted to highlight this particular thing is because we live in a culture now where where people can talk about their spirit or that they're spiritual, or that they're spiritual and not religious, or and this language becomes so slippery because nobody knows what anybody's talking about when they're talking about either my spirit, are you talking about substance dualism, are you talking about some mystical thing, are you talking what you know what do you mean by your because especially when it comes to spiritual gift, you know this language becomes so slippery that we can either a 
just assume we know what he means and gloss over it or just decide that there's no way to know what he means. And I, I, I think things like that, we got to stop ourselves and take a closer look. That's a good point, especially because I hear that I have family members that even say that, right? Like, oh, I'm just, I'm, I just, I'm no longer religious. I'm just a spiritual person now. And every time, I'm like, what does that even mean? But <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, with, I'm with Nick on that one, where I th- I'm like, well, sincerely and wholeheartedly, I can't say is no, but I don't think that's really what he's getting at. Um, but the spiritual side versus material side, I think I'd strongly reject that, um, just because I don't think Paul is trying to be a Platonist here. And I don't think he's trying to make it a spiritual versus a physical thing. I don't think that's his, even remotely in his scope. So I would just strongly reject the spiritual side versus the material side. I'm I'm with Nick on the spirit of yeah. God and well, Paul that, and his I mean, service. Yeah, because, yeah, I don't think he's talking about any sort of dualism here. Because, of course, he is going to get into the difference between the spirit uh, and the flesh. But by flesh, he means a particular thing. But that's a, a million shows from now at the rate we're going when we start well, getting. He's not, he's not he's not talking metaphysics. He's talking about his personal conviction about something that yeah. he's currently doing. It's right. His own self. Yeah. And I, I like the fact that Paul mentions the, the his prayers. Right. Because this is I mean, we we can say we get so used to saying, oh, I, I'll pray for you. And people never pray for each other, you know, even though. Yeah. I, or or some of our favorite ones is you ask somebody if they can do something and they'll tell you that they'll pray about it, things like that. But here Paul is like always asking him about prayers that have somehow God's will because, you know, he's tried to get to Rome before and then he does it. We know from history that he does eventually get there, but not kind of the way that he probably, you know, he gets there under arrest and chains, but you know, it, but that's, you know, that and somehow in God's will that, I mean, that was God's will, how he got to Rome, but, you know, well, like- as we're on this issue where we're rejecting option D, uh, Reverend Ron's revelation room, wow, that's hard to say, says, I think Paul's often misread as being a dualist. Well, those are those are the things that we bring to the text, right? Um, th- those are our ideas that that's what I'm saying. We can have preconceived notions when we see this language of spirit just because of the way that our culture has loaded those words yeah okay um well i did i did want to go ahead and tell you that the poll has ended what do you think won? well you probably all know it's the new american standard bible okay which one was the second uh the csb and then the kj it's exactly it's exactly in the order that they were no it's not i thought that was in the order they were listed but uh, I can't drop it in like I thought I could. But anyway, I actually, I actually pulled it up and voted KJV. So, <laughs> well, the NASB got forty-two percent, CSB got thirty-four percent, KJV got fifteen percent, and uh, Nick's what is that? Nick's better translation or something? Nick's Baptist translation that got seven percent. <laughs> so, so seven um, so percent of people know what they're talking about. Okay, cool. That sounds about right for political discourse. <laughs> But lastly, Jonathan, Paul prays for them if God wills and he wants to visit them. So I don't guess we really have too much to say about that, do we? Well, I already said what I wanted to say about it, but I don't know if anyone else has anything they want to chew on that. Well, I I actually think it would be... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, no. No, no, no. no, no. The dude dude with the lesser beard has got to go first, so I I abstain. Oh, Oh. don't take that. Don't take that. Well, at least I know how to brush my beard. Holy crud monkeys. 
I don't know if you're talking about this. Me is from or, my wife and my son playing else. with it. Uh, so, no, y'all, uh, y'all go. I'll mind my old mic get us on a rabbit trail. Two so everyone else PhD go. candidates fighting over whose degrees are better, but one of them went to Fuller, so the other one who didn't go to Fuller has the better degree. I'm just putting that up. Yeah, Nick. Nick already told me that my my degree is not worth anything, and he wouldn't go to my school if it was the last school in the world. Um, you don't go to Southern Seminary. <laughs> I don't have too much to say on this. I think that this oh, is fairly man. fairly clear. He's praying for them, so you know. Yeah, that's it. Let's keep it moving. Get to the good All stuff. Right. Here we go. Oh, somebody okay, else did want to say something. The chest thumping uh, piety thing, and say MJ, all of it's the good stuff. Every even even all of those course. chapters in Second Chronicles that's just names is God's word. Of course, you know, my my dad raised me saying, "Look here, you folks out there that have red red letter edition Bibles, you need to understand it's not just those red letters that are the words of God. The whole thing's the word of God." If you said that right now, I'd shout amen. (laughs) Look, I think when Paul told certain people to go chop their stuff off, that was good. So, you know, (laughs) I I agree with you. All of it's good. Yeah. Well, on that note. um, Yeah, on that note. (laughs) Okay, he once again brings up, he sincerely wants to see them in a part of spiritual gift. What is the spiritual gift? Because there's options here. He could be talking about the charismatic gifts. He could be talking about his presence and his teaching of the gospel when he gets to Rome. Some commentators are even saying these, which is weird. And Ben Witherington points out this is weird. But the letter of Romans itself is the gift, which is weird. Because why does he want to impart a gift if he's already sending the letter that is the gift? That that doesn't make very much sense. That's dumb. Yeah. But I think he, I think he wants to lay hands on them, tell them to lift their hands and receive it. <laughs> well, that that's that's one of the things that they they kind of mentioned, kind of uh, give give an apostolic the the apostolic laying of hands, since it was probably there's no apostle that you know necessarily did what we read about in Acts or whatever. In mean, so, verse verse. Uh... Verse 12 answers the question of what kind of spiritual gift he's talking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like that is that you and I may be, sorry, I'm, I don't have the, I don't have the, uh, mutually encouraged, yes, yeah, mutually encouraged in or by one another, uh, faith mutually and yours, both yours and mine. Like that's the spiritual gift, mutual encouragement in each other's faith. Right, I was gonna say it's like it seems like it's just a general blessing. Like I want to bless you with a spiritual gift, kind of like whenever I visit Trinity Sem, I know that I am a big spiritual blessing to Braxton and Bridget. <laughs> are, are you sure that that Paul does not want to correct Peter's uh, bishop selection? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he already did. He told him to eat with Gentiles and Galatians, and Paul won that one, so he's already corrected Peter. Yeah, <laughs> we all know. Also, I, the charismatic gifts, they, I'm sorry, like, I just think that is also an absurd view of this passage, but I'm also not a speaking in tongues, like, Hundala Shandala kind of guy either. So. Well, I am, and I don't think it's that absurd. I mean, it does get into the spiritual gifts later, uh, in, in Romans, but, um, but I don't know. The fact that he leaves it vague, but I, I have to push back on, on, uh, on Nick there because he's like saying, um, I want, 
I mean, he's like, yeah, I, I want to go there. I, 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 I see, I very much want to see you so I can impart a spiritual gift to strengthen you, which implies mm-hmm. they need strength. And he's like softening. He's like, I, I, that is, uh, <clears throat> we can mutually encourage one. Right? No, I, no, no, no. I, I already thought, there. I already thought Nick's way before I heard him explain why, because what, because it sounds very much, and understanding all of these parameters, it does sound very much like what we would call it in, in the South is he wants to go love on them. He wants to go encourage them, love on them, impart and some wisdom, and yes, then do the but, same for him. But he says he wants to go there so he can give them a gift and strengthen them, and then he's yeah. implying they need to be strengthened. Yeah, um, yeah, that's what you do when that's someone. That's what the verb means: mutual encouragement, mutual strengthens. Yeah. No, no, I. I think I think you're trying I to make this too much of an either or. Impart, <laughs> I may impart this Quiet, gift Meg. to strengthen you, and then he walks back that statement a little. That is this mutual. No, you're you're speculating that he's walking. Yeah, I mean, oh, 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 we've got the mind of Paul in Pritchett's hands right now. Okay, cool. And I don't know why. How lucky you are! How how lucky (laughs) you are! No, I very much want much to see you, so that I may impart a spiritual gift to strengthen you. Uh huh. So, and that is that is the tuta day, but that is that we may be mutually encouraged by one another. I think yeah, he's. I am, you know, he's he's imparting to you, and he wants mutual encouragement, and that's the same verbal language that he uses later about mutual welcoming and encouraging in Romans six fifteen and sixteen, specifically with Phoebe. I think he's saying I'm going to sort some of this stuff out by strengthening you with a spiritual gift, and then, but but we're going to mutually encourage each other. Uh, that that's too combative. This none of this looks combative. Nah. It's, it's no. A, it's, if you want combative, you get, you're in the wrong epistle, dude. You got to jettison back about. Five, I, I don't 10 think years. it's combative. I think it's, I think it's. I think it's uh, just a a, a a slight jab in there, laying down something that he's going to straighten them out on the weak and the strong. This way. isn't Corinth, dude. This isn't no, Corinth. Fight, fight, what? fight. Like, okay, I'll let I'll let you speak, Bruce, and I'll, I'm sorry. I'll go ahead. No, I've, I've spoken enough. I just I just think he's making a statement that he is going to impart a spiritual gift to strengthen them, and then he softens that by saying, uh, th- "By that I mean we're going to encourage one another." Okay, then you think we have to speculate. So, what do you think it is? You do think it's charismatic gifts, like sign gifts or something, Pritchett? Uh, well, as far as what the spiritual gift is, I I'm asking this panel of experts because i i don't have a strong yeah but if you're going to so swing at that and their explanations you need to be standing on you want other people to carry your interpretive water come on pritchett man oh, come dang. on pritchett let's get uh, i'd no, actually argue no no if you're right then i'll argue that it is the charismatic gift because we see that charismatic gift and language you know give language use all throughout romans so you could actually make that case but you gotta you, you gotta pritchett stick to landing on it for him? You're well, making because he's not going to make it i'll make it no, I'll, 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 make, I'll make the case that Paul intentionally leaves it vague for the very reason that he hasn't been to Rome yet. He knows that there's problems, so he will impart whatever spiritual gift is necessary to unify the church. And that's so why think, he intentionally leaves it vague. And notice in, 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 twelve, in chapter 12, the, the gifts aren't necessarily the charismatic ones that he, that he lists there. Mm-hmm. 
I'm I not saying I agree with it. I'm saying you need to give more, an answer for are that. The, are the more, sorry, Will. I'm sorry, Will. Go ahead. My bad. No, sorry, gonna, I just, no, no, I think it's prime, prime. I love you, buddy. But I think it's too much of an either or. Like, if I'm saying I'm going to love, like, hey, I'm going to, uh, what is it here that I have in the NASB? Uh, that impart a spiritual gift to you. Like, I'm going to visit another church. Like, hey, I'm going to be a spiritual blessing to you, impart a gift to you. And by that gift, which it would be like speaking or being a blessing in general, I am blessed in return. I think it's it's a mutual thing because to be a gift usually means that you're also going to be blessed yeah. in return. What That what you give, you're going to receive. But prophecy is the yeah. only one in Romans 12 that we could constitute as like one of the more supernatural. They're all gifts of the spirit. They're all supernaturally empowered by the spirit, but but prophecy is the only because the rest of them is teaching and encourage, uh, you know, mercy, leading, serving, that kind of stuff. He uses that. He, it's not in part language. We should have it as share. I desire to share this with you. This is something he possesses that he wants to share with them. But that implies mutuality. If we're going to talk. Listen, listen. Oh, mom and mom and dad are talking. OK, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I wanted to come in here and and encourage you because you've been down and you need to be strengthened. (laughs) And you could even refer to this as some sort of an imparting of a spiritual Uh, gift. Mutual encouraging, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's not mutual encouragement, that's being nicer on fire. And then very very much Braxton (laughs) style, we have this punch... Punches that are thrown, and then a walk back, which confirms my interpretation. <laughs> Thank you very much, Braxton Hunter. Oh, for- oh, there we go. We've confirmed it. Pritchett has the gift of prophecy, and so did Paul, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Chris, you've been quiet. The smartest one is quiet. Go ahead and drop some knowledge, Chris. Yeah, even, even a fool seems wise when he keeps his mouth shut. <laughs> no, I don't have anything. I mean, I, I don't have anything. A lot of this is just, you know, speculation. And so, like you, you guys, you guys are basically saying some of the stuff that I would have said. So, yeah, I really don't have a have a perception on, on this one. I, if anything, I lean lean towards. I was leaning toward uh, Roman uh, verse twelve being the actual gift, like uh, Nick had mentioned. So that's kind of so it's wrong. Pritch, it's wrong. You, you got to say that, Chris, so that we can all vote against Pritchett here. That's the, fine. The, the, I can take it. I can handle it. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's one person out there is like, yeah, I think Pritch is right on. Make that. another poll. <laughs> if there's a person I in the chat, every poll on this channel, they hate me. All if right. there's a person in this chat, oh look, Reveron says I think I'm with Pritchett. There we go. One person. Uh, All right. The the third time Paul mentions him wanting to see them. This ties back to what we talked about in the introduction. Why is he going to Rome? What is he trying to establish? Is this uh, because he's got these plans for Spain and he needs to get, uh, you know, them on board with that for logistics and support, which a lot of people take the acquire fruit to mean, as he has elsewhere from Gentiles, as converts. Now, that's possible, but would that contradict 1520 where he says he doesn't want to build on another man's foundation where the gospel's already been preached where and he's talking to Rome where there are Christians. So what do we what do we think about this acquire fruit when that kind of agricultural language has been used for missionary aid? You can see that um, in uh, Philippians, the fruit abounding to their credit uh, when he's talking about the gifts that Paul had received from uh, Philippi and to help his mission. So 
Um, we see that. Is he talking about discipleship? The like, does he mean to acquire fruit, like further progress them in discipleship and sanctification, like he talks about using that kind of language in Philippians one twenty two, or d all of the above? What what do we make of what Paul money? Money. That's what he wants. Harvest is slang <laughs> for money. He wants money. I want to reap a harvest from you, among you. Da da da. Money. That we're, we if we if we take that, we absolve ourselves of any interpersonal, social, rhetorical, or even patron-client relation issues. There, Paul has done nothing wrong, and he has helped. He's saved his own skin with that. It's money. It's slang. It's not slang, but it's. It's a euphemism for money. He wants yeah, to reap some money from. What about all that agricultural language about harvesting and and? What do you get when you sell your crops? When it comes to when it comes money. to. Thank you, Nick. What do you get when you sell when, your when crops? When it comes to when it comes to converts, you find that language in First Corinthians. So. so, but we ain't in Corinth, and I'm not, and I'm not sure Paul would want their money, given where their hands have been. So I, 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 I agree with Nick on this when you look at the book of when you look at the book of Acts. You see that Paul was collecting money as he was going around the world to give to the church back in Jerusalem, which was suffering. So it makes it makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense in in this conceptual world of of patron client and you know sort of their customs. So I, I I think that that's what's going. On. I agree with Nick. I think that he's he's kind of he's saying it clearly in their language, but it seems implicit to us because we we don't always pick up on their idioms or their way of speaking. And Paul never asked explicitly in as many words for the manumission or the liberation or the freedom of Onesimus from Philemon. But we know that's what he's asking for. He doesn't have to use the word. He is smart. And I'm with Pritchett. He's rhetorically a brilliant writer. In, in he's just saying, give me money. He's going to sound like he's asking for stuff. Anyway, I'm going to stop right in, now. In honor shame cultures, it, it sounds like we're like, it often sounds like you're, Speaking roundabout, like if you think back, mm-hmm. to, uh, like in the Old Testament, with with um, what was it? Abraham, when Abraham is brokering the um, this this uh, this cave for burial for his wife, right? And he's the, the guy's like, here you can have the cave, and he's like, no, 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 I insisted I pay for it. And he's like, no, no, I insisted you take it. No, no. Well, if if you were to take it, um, what would it? What would you charge me for it? I wouldn't charge you anything for it, but if you had this amount of money, and then okay, I I agree to that. And so I think that's, yeah, I think that's just the customary way of communicating um, when you're talking about finances. You don't necessarily speak directly. You speak sort of in this roundabout way and you you honor the person. You don't set this person up so that they can look bad. You, you, you say things or ask things in a way to where they can, if necessary, decline and save face because they're an honor shame society. They're an honor shame culture. Yeah. And we do it to a certain degree, even now. That is to say, we disguise the way, you know, not in a way where we're trying to deceive. Everyone knows, but we we don't just come out and say these financial terms. We might say something like, "Okay, this family's house is burned down in our community. We, we're going to take up a like a a, a love offering, or we're going to bless them with a gift from the church, or something like that." And we're talking about money, right? <laughs> That's what's going on. So, so, but have we not set all this up? and you were new to this, would you have thought that what he meant was uh, acquire fruit as he has elsewhere among the Gentiles? Would you have thought initially he meant... You mean the plain reading of the text? Is that what you're asking us about? Yeah, would you have thought he meant acquire fruit as I have from elsewhere among the Gentiles? Yeah, Paul's a orange picker, yeah. That that he would convert, he would want to preach the gospel to convert people to Christianity as opposed to share his gospel 
with the churches at Rome to unite them under his banner to help him finance his, with logistics and all that that we talked about in the introduction to Spain. What would you have thought? What verse are we talking about? Go back. What, let's see. Is it on? Show me what verses are we referring to specifically? Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I've often planned come to see you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you. Or yeah. literal translation would be like acquired some fruit. 13, is verse that, 13, Braxton. Just as I have from the rest of the Gentiles. And what you know about in, Paul as the, 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 the missionary to the Gentiles would you have not initially thought that he was referring to make some converts? Well, if I read what I just read here, I would take the interpretive position of the translator, not knowing any better. And it says he hopes he has a fruitful ministry. But if we take Nick's position, that's out. I I'm with Nick on this, <laughs> but you would, but oh, see, say it again. Oh, okay. say it again. Hold on. Say okay. it again. I agree with Nick. Nick is super smart. Oh, I can smart. tell right now. Y'all have a good so day. Smart. He's so anyway. Uh, but yeah, I agree with him. But I, I think a lot of people would think just from what they know and not thinking about what Paul says later on in Romans 15 about not wanting to proclaim the gospel that and knowing that he wants to go to Spain, which he doesn't really mention in the beginning, but he does mention that in chapter 15 that he's really wanting to do the fruit that he wants to acquire is the resources to help per- go to Spain. Also, as he has some other church. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the error that a lot of like Westerners would make on this when they're to acquire some fruit is that they would take that as acquire some sort of blessing because we seem to think like fruit of the spirit, therefore these sorts of things. So I think that's the mistake that a lot of people would make in this area. Well, if I heard, we don't like to talk about money. Yeah. And and that's true. But like, if I heard like, so this guy that translates this or this team that translates this fruitful ministry, um, is that, yeah. So (laughs) fruitful. Yeah. You're right, Nick. There's all this stuff about spiritual fruit and bearing fruit and all that sort of thing. But fruitful is just a term, uh, that, uh, that just, that just means, uh, you're bring, you something's being brought forth, right? Something is being brought forth that is beneficial. But to Chris's, po- but to Chris's point, Paul does mention which by the time they received this letter, the the collection for Jerusalem would have been on its way, and he does you know m- mention that kind of thing. So I think that, but, but like I said, the the narratio is planting seeds of what we find later in the letter, and so I, I think he's saying that he you know he was told at the Jerusalem council to remember the poor and he's made every effort to do so. Uh, he says that later. And so, um, he's, he has received fruit, uh, you know, gifts, uh, for, for that purpose, uh, to send back to them. So I, I think that's kind of sits well with, um, with the position that Nick's argued for. Yeah. The, uh, the notion that this would be a spiritual fruit among them, uh, you know, as well as the other Gentiles, like meaning conversion. I mean, this is already a Christian crowd. Uh, so I'm, so I'm thinking th- that he's talking about some type of material benefit that he could share. Like, like we just said with uh, uh, the less fortunate. Yeah. Now this last statement and then the first in verse 16, I think is, is very interesting, but the last statement of the narratio 
And then when you look at the difference between what he's saying here and then what he says in uh, the very next verse is he, is he says, you know, um, he says, I have this uh, obligated to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And these are types of like Greco-Roman cultural distinctions that he's making here rather than ethnic ones, where in the next verse he makes ethnic distinctions. And what, what's, what he seems to be going on about here is saying that, that his obligation to, to witness to the non-Jewish world is without class distinction here, you know, without, without honor status here. We talk a lot about honor and shame where, you know, the fool, right, versus the wise. And, you know, you can think about the language that he uses in 1 Corinthians. Um, and we talk about how we, our best estimate, guess, is that he's writing from Corinth. So he's got these ideas, uh, socioeconomic scale, um, whether they're cultured Greeks or they're... Um, what non-Greek speakers, which they call barbarians, which is what they would think the people in Spain were, for example. Um, he, he's making these cultural distinctions that he's obligated from bottom to top, you know? Cultural distinctions that are extremes. Like, they're very... These are... He's not picking the the centrist, you know, he's picking the, the wide range that everyone would accept. It's, yep, those are the ones over there, those are the outsiders over there, the insiders are here. You also yeah. have to deal, too, with the... Um, I don't know if I... I, I think to base to keep going with it the the debt language there um i mean i'm i'm under obligation to both greeks and to barbarians um both to the wise and the foolish i mean the fact that you don't have you have the uh, the noun there refers to someone who's in, in debt specifically like i mean that's a financial term and in romans it's used that way it's in romans 8 12 or romans 8 12 that probably has that idea so then, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation not to the flesh, you know, so maybe it doesn't fit there. But that's the word that's used in Romans 15, 27, you know, for their pleasure. Indeed, they owe it to them. That's that's financial. So it's cultural. But money is culture. Whose image is on the coin? What does the coin do? What do all these things do? What does the economy symbolize? How are things bartered and traded through social honor? Or you might just call it at this point, it's social currency. And so here, if his under obligation or indebted to both Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. That tells us that Paul is not a stickler about where he gets his money from at the base level, but also shows he's no respecter of persons, which becomes a major theme throughout Romans as well. God does not show favoritism or partiality. So the fact that Paul takes it from the wide extremes, from Greeks and barbarians, foolish and wise, and they're not identical. It's not as if Greeks you know, uh, and barbarians or Greeks are the wise and barbarians are the foolish, but it's that he's making a distinction that he himself, he's basically saying, I'm living under the gospel of God that I preach. I'm consistent on this point. And that's a point that he has to make consistently in Romans, because if he doesn't, his gospel and his mission and his church and his legacy fall apart. So to, to summarize that, I realized I said a bunch very quickly. Um, I'm under obligation. I'm indebted to Greeks and barbarians means I take money from everyone. I'm engaged with everyone. I don't show favoritism or partiality to who I engage with or who I'm friends with. Uh, I am going to barbarians and Greeks, so on and so forth. Um, and this is a major theme that God does this too. As a slave of Jesus Christ and the, and the gospel of God, I am consistent on this point, which means I have the right to be a part of you and to ask this of you, although I'm doing so in the socially honored way of doing it. Now, Will, your hands up. I will stop. So I just wanted to quickly clarify for the audience who might not be aware of like how the Roman culture worked, why 
because you don't see throughout Pauline letters, you see a lot of Jew and Gentile comparisons. But we see here there's a discussion of Gentiles, barbarians now, and Jews. And that is important because basically in the Greek Empire, you were pretty much considered a Greek or a Gentile, or you were a Jew, right, in this area. Uh, the barbarians were basically all those outside of the Roman Empire. So uh, I'm my last name is Hess. I am German. Uh, my people were the Germanic Hessian psychopaths that, you know, danced naked around fires uh, up north of their, their wall. We were, my people were the barbarians. Uh, so it is, it is funny to kind of realize the fact that he's literally going, even those crazy people that people in our society would really frown upon on both the Jewish side and the Greek side, even those people. The mission of God and the gospel of God and the resurrection of Jesus do not stop in urban centers. They go to the barbarians. They go to those who are most in need of the gospel of God. And that includes sinners. That'll preach. Well, here we have deja vu disciples saying, but doesn't this make it sound like Paul is saying the first thing he is going to do is trade spiritual gifts for money? I mean, that's what prosperity preachers do all the time. But... <laughs> That's not an answer. <laughs> I think, well, no, you know, I, no, I'm sorry. I was, I, I, it's a great question. I don't think that's what Paul's doing. Okay. Go ahead, Chris. Right. You're saying something. No, I was, I was like, even if Paul was doing that, you know, don't muzzle the, the ox that, you know, he, Paul often, you know, quotes Paul's this gotta get you know, paid. from the law. Hey, yeah, you, you got to get paid. So I don't necessarily think, while it might, while it may have sort of a, uh, you know, a, a, a poor or even nefarious connotation in our time. That might not be have been the case in their time. And that's a Western thing too, Chris, remember? Like yeah. this is very common in thir- quote developing nations. This is very common. This is how yeah. you talk- in, in, in an ancient world, everybody's traveling around the world doing something for money. You know, whether you're a magician, whether, whatever you are, you're traveling that- the world, you're going to epicenters and you're you're either trying to make money for yourself or you're trying to raise money for a cause. So yeah. I, I don't necessarily think that would have been a bad thing, even if it is kind of offering that connotation. And Paul is doing that very latter thing, raising money for a cause, telling these Romans that your faith is renowned all over the world. And so we can carry that if you can unify your church and you guys can sponsor me. You're going to look at the, the what was it, Philippians uh, 417 that it's going to overflow to your account because you are helping with this mission. Missionaries raise outside of the SBC anyway, uh, where they're salaried, missionaries try to raise money so that they can actually go and do the thing, you know, go and do the mission work. And one of the things that the Southern Baptists do is they pay salaries so that they don't have to spend half of their year in churches begging for money uh, to support their ministries. Yeah, my May sister I? and brother-in-law were missionaries to, to the to deaf, like those who cannot hear in England. And uh, that was one of the things that they had to do, right? They had to keep traveling around church to church to church. <laughs> money, please give Raise me money. money. That yep. was a, that was a thing. And so, none of us and none of us looked at it as nefarious either. It's, it's, it shouldn't be because you need it to do your mission. Reverend says, well, what about Paul's boast about not being paid for the gospel, you guys? Oh, that was that was particular to Corinth because he did because of the way the patron the, the patron client reciprocity system worked is if you had a patron you had to go about promoting their patron's honor and that's a beholdenness that Paul did not want to have to the people at Corinth when when you're about to rip them a new one which is what he does uh, in two letters and well in the second letter he's defending his own 
ministry and saying it may look like I'm, you know, shipwrecked and getting beaten and start riots and all that, but I'm still, this is all honorable, even though you might think that I'm being shamed for it. This is honorable in the service of the gospel of God. So Paul did not want to be beholden to them, but we don't see that in the friendship letter to Philippi, right? We see that, that he does. I mean, Jesus took money from women. Uh, Suzanne and Paul, Paul didn't want to bankrupt his churches and make them poor and help them starve. Like he, he's not going to take money out of the mouths of their, like out of their mouths. He, he says that in Second Corinthians eight, I'm, I'm not doing this so that you can have struggle while you meet their needs, but I'm doing this so that there might be equality. Yeah, yeah. Oh, may watch I make that equality. At, may, may I make a, a suggestion? And it's okay to say no. I've got MJ about choosing violence. I've got about 15 minutes before I got to bounce. Um, and Jonathan wanted me to uh, talk about the righteousness of God. Yeah. Uh, and we're yeah. just, we're, we're just okay. now through that. Just because I didn't want to be like, all right, see y'all got to go. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now it comes to the big, uh, the big two verses in, in the book of Romans um, on the next slide, please. Uh, the, I am not ashamed of the gospel statement. Right. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of powerful language here. Uh, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes. And here he makes the uh, the ethnic distinctions first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, uh, "The righteous will live by faith." Which is a uh, paraphrase. Uh, we'll get into that uh, of Habakkuk two four. So um, you've got the gospel, you've got salvation, you've got to everyone who believes, you've got ethnic distinctions, you've got this big, somewhat controversial statement nowadays in, in the Pauline studies world uh, of Nick and the, the righteousness of God. So uh, because you're short on time, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to the other stuff uh but we'll we'll go to the the second to last bullet point. Uh, it's, this is the first mention of God's righteousness that's found uh, in Paul's gospel that he's about to unpack. So why don't you give everyone a survey of the literature right now of what people are fighting about what that what that means, Nick? So um, it's it, if you if you just Google the phrase the righteousness of God, you will find. Uh, hundreds of articles, uh, and I did. Uh, you will find multiple books, that, and I did. Charles Lee Irons, uh, Ernst Kazemont has a famous article on it. But there's there's kind of, I found, and I was, my, my supervisor helpfully penned this, and it was actually very helpful because I was just going to go on it my own. But he gives one, two, three, he gives five kind of standard meanings of the phrase, not what it says, but what it means, because we all know what the righteousness of God says. It says the righteousness of God, but we're not told by Paul specifically what that means or what that looks like. And it's a phrase that's loaded with meaning. So I'll, I'll read them out and give kind of a, a bit of a um, summary from them. And we'll go from there. So the phrase, the righteousness of God, the first one is called the divine uh, divine attribute. You would say the righteousness of God has often been regarded as God's own righteousness. Uh, while for some this implies too God's demonstration of his righteous character in his judgment, fidelity, and salvation. So righteousness, 
of God is a, a divine attribute. It is basically what God does. So taking it as a subjective genitive. Then you have the second, which is uh, the divine gift. The predominant Protestant view has regarded the righteousness of God as the gift of righteousness given to the believer. And so it kind of takes the, the, the idiom, the righteousness of God, and kind of expands it contextually a little bit, uh, which is, of course, what you want to do contextually. Context determines what words mean. Um, so that's kind of the standard Protestant one. Um, the third is what, and you'll notice too, just as a caveat, there is overlap in these. It's more a matter of emphasis. What is being emphasized versus what is being excluded? Number three is covenant faithfulness. Uh, for those who know anything about this, this sounds an awful lot like uh, a certain Reverend Dr. Nicholas Thomas Wright. But uh, the it's actually uh, given to H. Uh, H. Creamer, uh, popularized the view that Paul's righteousness of God equates to God's covenant faithfulness. For Kramer, uh, righteousness in Hebraic thought was a relational concept, not an abstract one. And God's righteousness stood in parallel to God's faithfulness. And that's, you can get that from Philip Zeisler. Jimmy Dunn and the late Jimmy Dunn and others. So that's number three. Number four is divine saving action. Um, you would have, uh, and this is similar to the covenant covenantal view, but it's focused more on narrative kind of historical or narrative. So uh, ropes uh, identifies the righteousness of God against a background of Isaiah. I almost said Isaiah, forgive me, Lord, and forgive me, Mike, pertaining to God's vindicating power on behalf of the oppressed, rendering the righteousness Righteousness of God as a divine attribute displayed in divine power for salvation. Already, you're seeing overlap. It's a matter of emphasis. The uh, fifth one, and that view would be kind of the standard view that seems to be uh, put forth by Roman Catholics like Joseph Fitzmaier, uh, Anglicans like Michael Byrd, and who knows what Calvinists like Douglas Moo. You pick whichever one you want. The fifth and final one is called apocalyptic deliverance, a variation of the saving righteousness position. So the previous one uh, who specify the righteousness of God is denoting an apocalyptic act of deliverance. The righteousness of God is something revealed verse 17 made known Romans three twenty one, an invasive cosmic act of rectification. You get that from, of course, Leander Keck, Beverly Gaventa and others. Ernst Kazemon was probably the, the main proponent or at least he's the he's the bombshell that caused the map to go oh we need to now pay attention to the smoke coming from that um so those are the five main views um you can see uh in in new testament studies specifically paul it's very often a matter of which ones do you like best and which ones fit together it's kind of like atonement theories. Pick whichever atonement theory you like that fits the biblical data best. Doesn't mean other atonement theories are wrong or even that they're insufficient. It just means they are to be seen in light of this singular idea that can encompass them. Uh, I'm not going to tell anyone what mine is because I think it's rather obvious, But or, or I should say, I think it's obvious. If you want me to explain it, I will happily do so. But those are the five main views. And just to cite my source, because he will kill me if he sees this video, Michael Byrd's article in the Dictionary for the Study of Paul and His Letters, second edition that came out this year. Mm. Is he in the first edition? I have no idea. Okay. Because I don't feel like buying the second edition. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reason to ask the question. <laughs> I'm, I'm with, uh, like you said, because – 
this topic, I mean, obviously there's, you could go with an attribute of God. Of course, God's attributes deal with righteousness. And of course, you could extrapolate a lot of these things. But I'm a, I agree with NT, right? That the biggest thing that's probably like that I think centralizes is this idea of covenant faithfulness. Um, but then I think the apocalyptic versions have a lot of stuff, but I already know you're an apocalyptic guy in general. So, but why am I an apocalyptic guy? That's the question. Uh, because it says revealed. Yeah. Yeah, there's that. But here's here's my view, and I'll, I'll I'll say it so I can toss the bombshell and run away and not have to deal with anything <laughs> like a good interim pastor. Um, I think the fifth view makes sense as the tip of the spear because it begin Romans begins with the assertion of Son of God in power through His resurrection from the dead. So everything that we believe that Paul believes or we believe uh, from Paul is that Paul was an incarnational theologian, hence to say. The incarnation, the resurrection, the life of Jesus, the Christ event is the singular act of invasion back into the cosmic order. That only is confirmed through resurrection, as Paul makes clear. Resurrected son of God in power and installed as son of God in power. Not demonstrated, installed. Basically put back to his original proper place as the Lord of the cosmos. That means the apocalyptic view, in my mind, makes best sense of all the data and helpfully includes the divine attribute of God's righteousness. God's something that God possesses as a subjective genitive. That is, it's God's thing that God has and even God is. It also fits nicely with the divine gift that God actually gifts people something specifically as a result of that invasive power. It demonstrates as it is spoken through the prophets in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, that God's faithfulness to the seed of Abraham is summed up in the incarnational resurrection of Jesus Christ. And number four, you don't have the apocalyptic without God actually doing something through the apocalyptic invasion. So in my mind, all five are correct, but it begins with the apocalyptic reality of Jesus Christ's resurrection that therefore clarifies everything and confirms everything that Paul believes about Jesus Christ. So I will stop there. And all that's possible because of God's covenant faithfulness. Yeah. I, I, I was going to say, I, I kind of with, I, I, you know, like atonement theory, I, I like to pick and say yes more than no. Uh, even with some of the moral government stuff, I think uh, is okay to, to incorporate. And I know that we have a, you know, is like Baptist thing is to just pick what you want off the theological buffet. But I think, I think the apocalyptic thing, um, is if it's for some people for atonement a theory, well, yeah, I'm old. Uh, for some people, the the uh, atonement theory is some people, uh, if you're not Will Hess, are like, yes, some form or or Nick Quint for that. Matter. Yes, some penal substitution is is fine, not necessarily the the crazier versions of it, but really Christus Victor's the main. Thing. I would no, say ransom theory. A, don't don't give me Christmas victory. I'm I'm with ransom theory on that one. Okay. Anyway, but um, for me, I think covenant and faithfulness does the best job as being the container for the rest of it. Um, I know it's easy to say in a post Platonist West that the attribute is the container for all the other things, but if you look at God always being faithful to him, his promises as the driving force in the old Testament, I think that the covenantal faithfulness is the container uh, that we can find the attribute that we could find God's divine action in the world. Um, but I know Nick's shaking his head, but you had your say, I'm just giving you why I think that, but I, like I said, I, 
I'm not going to die on any of these hills. So. <laughs> Can I say one thing? Of course. Okay. Um, I don't, I, of course, I don't necessarily disagree entirely. No Jew in Rome would have objected to any of these four views. They would have been like, yeah, but they would have also affirmed God is faithful to his covenants. They would have affirmed God's saving power. They would have affirmed the divine attribute and the divine gift. None of that's controversial. The one sticking point is the resurrection and incarnation and enthronement of Jesus Christ as Messiah over all things. And that is the sticking point because in Romans 9, 5, when Jesus Christ is called God, you can see why every first century Jew who is not a witness to the resurrection would object. And that is where the mission, that's where the rubber meets the road. If Jesus Christ is called God in Romans 9, 5, and he's basically the incarnation, he's the apocalyptic deliverer, he's all these things, you don't have any conflict in the Jewish people on that front. You do have it when you have the apocalyptic Jesus Christ at the center of it. So all four views are correct underneath the incarnation of Christ because they wouldn't, re- they wouldn't reject any of these. They would reject the apocalyptic element of the of the preexistent Jesus Christ coming to heaven to show us the way, to quote the old hymn. Right, but I don't know if that's Paul's emphasis when he's trying to unite Jews who have been converted with Gentiles who have been converted. I've already said too much. I'll stop. I'm sorry. No, we're here to learn. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm also sitting here going, like, I don't want to put uh, – anyway. Uh, okay, fine. Um, okay, here. If Jesus Christ, you've got the rest of the stream. Here, here's the thing: if Jesus Christ is God, as Romans nine five says, and He is installed Son of God in power through the resurrection, and He's the seed of David, and it's He's the one who's been written about, then all of these are true. But you don't have any of them to talk about if you don't have Him resurrected, and that's the apocalyptic motif that gets missed. You can only talk about all these other things in the context of Romans because Jesus Christ is apocalyptically apocalyptically raised from the dead, and Paul would even have anything to talk about. Jews already believed in all these four things. They all believe this. This is not controversial. The controversial sticking point is Jesus Christ because then the question becomes, has God abandoned his people? Has God thrown off this? And Paul's response is, he's a Jew. He's the seed of David. He's all these things. This is the unifier. This is how it all comes back together. It's all Christotelic. And when we kind of shut... I'm sorry. That's the crux. Yeah. And that's the issue. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead and thrown to son of God on power in an invasive power, as the apocalyptic school says, then all the rest of these are irrelevant. But if he is, then all of them make sense. But that's the thing. They all make sense. Only that. And it explains why there's such racial conflict and ethnic conflict between Jews and Gentiles. It makes sense why the Jewish people uh, there's that stumbling block motif. There's that all these issues. And it's why Paul goes on that long tirade in Romans 9 through 11, putting Jesus Christ at the center of all of it. They belong the oracles, the covenant, the promises, and all this. And Jesus Christ is Lord, is God over all things. God forever be praised, right? Without that, then none of Romans makes sense. Because then we're fighting about piecemeal things. If Jesus Christ is apocalyptically raised from the dead, as the apocalypticists are correct on, then everything else in Romans 9 through 11 and 12 through 15 makes sense. And that is where the rubber meets the road because Jews did not accept Jesus as Messiah. And Paul is beginning with the assertion of the resurrection of Messiah as enthroned king offends Jews and it offends Gentiles. And that is why he has to explain to the people in Romans 9, 10, and 11 why God has not severed his people off. He's, that's an argument about theodicy at its heart. And race and ethnicity, culture, social honor, all play a factor in that. And that's my that's my ultimate point. Why five is the most important, but cannot exclude the others. 
So I'll stop right now because I got to run. Chris, I can see your uh, your uh, wheels spinning over there. You good? Oh yeah, I'm good. No, I'm, like I had some other comments, but it wasn't related to this. Act. It was related to these verses, but not related to the point that we're actually discussing right now. And I thought it was interesting. I thought like three, four, and five sort of resonated with me. You know, I, I'm a big, heavily influenced by N.T. Wright, so you know, of, of course, the faithfulness of God, you know, resonates with me. I'm I'm sort of new to understanding apocalyptic, so. You know, I'm, I'm still kind of, you know, reflecting and, and wrapping my mind around that. But I thought that uh, Nick made some, you know, compelling points as he was, you know, um, pointing out the emphasizing why um, apocalyptic has these uh, elements that that uh, really tie things together really well. But again, I, I'm sort of new to apocalyptic, so it's hard for me to I don't want to I don't want to shift until I've like sort of yeah. absorbed a little bit more. To use well, let me just ask this yeah. to to Pritchett because I know he really you know is not an apocalyptic guy. I mean, what what does covenant faithfulness do uh, for um, you know Jesus breaking the power of sin and death? I mean, what what does covenant? How does covenant faithfulness uh, explain that? Well, like Besides I said, destroyed penal substitutionary atonement. We're we're talking about. We're talking about a yes and to all of these, and we're talking about what is the container. Nick argues persuasively, but and he's not here to defend himself, which which we may want to hash this out because I can be convinced that my my container because he wants covenant faithfulness too, but I I think you know taking a canonical approach to the, the righteousness of God and and taking on board all of the Old Testament stuff, we we do have the promise of a new covenant. Uh, that God is also going to be faithful to. And how does he do that? He does that through the revelation of Jesus Christ and, and the raising him from the dead. Let, let me reframe. That doesn't, but that doesn't move. That doesn't move the meaning of the righteousness of God as this revelation, but it could, I could be persuaded that that's what was meant all along. As you know, as progressive revelation unfolded, I just I'm not there yet, but I see that, that that's why I'm saying I, I agree with Nick belongs. Nick's view of the apocalyptic view of the righteousness of God belongs in the container. I just don't think it's the container yet. But I, I mean, yeah. I could be convinced because uh, I mean, what does Paul say here? I mean, Nick has a strong case, I think, because Paul does say, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power of salvation for in it, i.e. this gospel of the Davidic Messiah who died and rose again, for in it the the righteousness of God uh, is revealed from faith to faith. So, I mean, I I think the case is there. Um, but like Chris, I want to uh, before I just like rearrange the deck chairs on this Titanic of <coughs> what is the Titanic and what are deck chairs on it uh, for these other views, the attribute view, and all of that. Uh, I just want to get some clarity in my head on this because. We can just gloss over this phrase and not understand all the the various arguments for the different positions. And I've done a lot of that before I started reading a lot of New Testament scholarship. And now I want to get all this stuff sorted and we never stop learning. And I'm not a Pauline guy. So it's like I want to hear it and I'm open to it. So well, and in my mind as well, like a lot of times in the Old Testament, right, God's righteousness was always kind of playing at or pointing toward 
his the covenant or the covenant faithfulness. So it, that's why I've always taken the covenant. Now I like apocalyptic stuff. I think there's a lot of great imagery there, and I don't think that's anything we should discount or throw because I think it's pulling on extremely important themes. Which is why I think that Nick is making very compelling points because I agree that the resurrection of the Son of God is absolutely the crux of. I mean, really, is I you could say the spear point of, of course, the entire gospel message. But I think. Righteousness of God being his covenant faithfulness makes the most sense as Christ is the fulfillment of all these different covenants. There is all, and it's all culminated in Christ as that. And as, as he's talking to Jewish believers also in Rome, it would make sense that he's connecting it to the covenants of old and bringing it here, going to all those covenants that you've been holding on to. This is not throwing those out. This is actually the fulfillment of them. And so that's, that's my mind here, but I'm willing to be convinced any direction, but that's just my general perspective. So you just brought up when I asked the question, how does it, it, it explains the, um, the dethroning of sin and death. You brought up substitutionary atonement. Okay. Substitutionary atonement deals with the individual sinner being made right with God. But I guess my question is what about these rogue powers, these competing sovereignties what is substitutionary atonement within a covenant faithfulness framework? Because these rogue powers are not necessarily even mentioned in the Old Testament. Satan oh. is barely mentioned in the Old Testament. Oh, you're, you're, you're I, I'm, maybe I should clarify. I am not a penal substitutionary atonement right. guy. Chris is uh, Victor usually for all no. day long. I, yeah. I actually, I, Working on yeah. finishing a book on the atonement. And yeah, we'll so. save this fight for. Uh... No, it's not a fight. It's, it's just a question about explanatory <laughs> no, well, scope well, and power. Well, really. Yeah, but I don't. I, I don't take a PSA view that is individualistic. I take a positional view of PSA, um, and I don't take it that it was wrath poured out on Jesus. I I, I take the lesser God poured out His wrath and sin in the flesh of Jesus. So. Um, and we can we can hash all that out when we get to Romans what three. Did you just say that last thing again. Well, I say <laughs> what Paul says: the, the lesser God. God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus, which is not the same thing as God condemned Jesus. So right, right, I, I right. just just Pauline language. But but my <laughs> understanding of PSA, penal substitutionary atonement, is not a one to one correspondence. It is a position for everyone who believes in the gospel. They are positioned uh, as covered. Uh, yeah, by the Matthew, Matthew's used to talking to Calvinists. Huh? Matthew's used to talk, arguing with Calvinists. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> beating them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's go on. Uh, I think that covers that. And we're all kind of open uh, to various things. But, you know, this is the last Nathan, slide, just so everyone knows. <laughs> no, the second to last slide. Go to the second to last slide. We'll unpack Habakkuk 2.4. That had to get some slide. But, you know, the I'm not ashamed of the gospel is the reverse way to say I'm, you know, he's he doesn't say <coughs> I'm super honored by the gospel, right? This is honor-shame language. He takes the negative way of saying it because I am not ashamed of the gospel. And so this is kind of, uh, you know, it, it, it's a way of saying it without saying it, right? Um, he's not... He's saying he's not ashamed is a way of saying he's honored, but he doesn't say it the more honored way. He's he's saying he's not ashamed. And some people see this as an echo of the Jesus tradition. 
you know, where, where those verses, uh, you know, if anyone, Mark 8, 38, and it's parallel in Luke 9, if anyone is ashamed of me, right, uh, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he, so this kind of echoes that Jesus tradition. Yes, the Gospels come later, but we know that Paul, like in 1 Corinthians, talking about the Lord's Supper and all of that, he draws on these Jesus traditions that were later written down. So this, this statement of I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Um, if you look at first Corinthians, you know, he just talked about the wise and the foolish and first Corinthians with respect to Jesus, the dying and rising Messiah, why it's, you know, folly to the Gentiles and all of that, the people that he's trying to reach. You can go back to that section of first Corinthians to see this honor shame dynamic at play to, to the people that he's witnessing to. So, but, but then he gets to the gospel <laughs> and there's a big debate about what the gospel is and isn't. Isn't that right, Chris? Yes. <laughs> that was definitely right. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk, uh, I wanted to kind of, you know, talk a little bit about salvation, which I see you have listed on here. Like, yeah. you know, how we, you know, get around and how we thinking about salvation. Also wanted to kind of um, argue or, or enter, you know, bring back in the fact, like when you go earlier in Romans and Paul is talking about bringing the Gentiles into the obedience of the faith um, uh, at, through Jesus, you know, and how here when, when we're talking about this righteousness, you know, kind of drawing out some of the more um, practical um, social implications of this. Cause I often, I think that we have a, a default to almost Platonistic, you know, perception of what salvation means. And, and we, we lose sight of the fact that these are talking, a lot of this is empire critique. A lot of this is, you know, juxtaposition of God's kingdom through Christ versus, you know, Rome or, you know, Rome and their kingdom. And, and so, yeah, you know, that's, that, I wanted to kind of um, delve into that a little bit. Yeah, so this is Paul's first mention of salvation in, in the book of Romans. And, you know, he's mentioned the gospel and the good news of Jesus several times. Um, but a lot of kind of post-Lutheran readings of this is the, the gospel is really not much so much what Jesus said in the gospels, but it's really what Paul says in Romans Right, read a particular way through what I would take to be Luther's existential crisis of how can me, a poor sinner, find uh, you know justification? Yeah, and so they think that 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 is the gospel, and then everything that Jesus did was and, and said prior. I mean, if you read Mark, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is <laughs> repent and believe the gospel. Uh, so right. there, there is a gospel. There's a gives, message. And unless you're like one of those hyper dispensationalists to say that Jesus's message was uh, not the same as Paul's <laughs> and Jesus had one, which I don't think anyone here is a dispensationalist or at least a hyper dispensationalist to think there's there's one message that Jesus gave to the Jews. They rejected it. So now that now Paul's plan B kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I know that that's a caricature. I, I hear the dispensationalists. I, I know. But still, I'm just. Caricatures exist for a reason. Uh, but um, a lot of times we think that salvation purely means eventual eschatological deliverance, right? Mm -hmm. At death. 
for my, unless you're here at the Parousia, it's you. Salvation is what happens, you know, ultimately when you die. Um, I I don't think Paul means less than that, but I do think Paul means a lot more than that. More than that, exactly. So, yeah, I was going. Yeah, yeah, I think we have a truncated. I think that there's a there's a, a unfortunate tradition of of a very um, this very truncated notion of salvation. It, 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 which it, which is exactly what Pritchett was just uh, mentioning, like this eschatological, you know, final uh, reconciliation things versus um, I think that salvation has a much more robust um, implication to it. And it is it's also much more imminent. It's also, it, it's, it's relevant to the there them there. And at the moment that Paul is speaking and not simply, you know, how what their ultimate destination is going to be. And, and so a lot of the a lot of the the exposition that I that I hear coming from traditionally coming from the Book of Romans is it reduces the Book of Romans into the like basically who qualifies and how it works, you know, you know to the to this end yeah, notion. Exactly. So yeah, I, I thought that it, I thought that uh, that would be something. Uh, this would be one of the things that would be helpful for us to kind of draw out a little bit. What falls into that category? I know I've been shaped to some. I've been shaped by N.T. Wright. He's one of the people that's kind of you know influenced my thinking. Um, Michael uh, Gorman as well, and I, I like how he um, you know he really leans into you know the 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 social implications of the loadedness of the social implications of that. And so, yeah, um, you know, and, and that, that, you know, that's too much to mention, you know, but, but, it, but it, it would be what we care. It's just like us in our world today. We care, we, we care about politics because, because we care about our experience. And to some degree, we might care about the experience of other people and we want a good experience. Yeah, and so there- I think the salvation is, is basically the things that you care about in life, the things that truly matter in life, the, you know, what kind of, you know, economic, you know, access and experiences are you having? What type of access to welfare, not in the sense of, you know, state welfare, but in the sense of you actually flourishing and such, you know, so when I'm thinking of salvation, I think flourishing. So go yeah. ahead. So I was going to say, speaking of N.T. Wright, there was a very popular clip several years ago where John MacArthur thought he, I think he almost called him a heretic, if not outright. I can't remember from the clip, but that was the gist of it. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, because because um, because he said, you know, why is he talking about the gospel um, as all of this other stuff instead of you know the the main thing about eschatological deliverance? Why you know that's kind of where he was going with that, and why is N.T. Wright um, bringing up all this other stuff? Um, and yeah, he, I want to throw it. Go ahead, Pritchett. And and what he did was, and I, I thought it was he he quoted it and didn't get it because he he went to oh N.T. Wright so wrong because remember Paul said in First Corinthians fifteen now I want to remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. See, the gospel is about how to get saved. And I said no, Paul said, and I was thinking to myself, you just read it. The gospel is saying. And then it is the thing by which you are saved. But being saved is not the gospel, right? The gospel is that by which you are saved, exactly as Paul said. You just read it right in front of you, John MacArthur. Yeah. The gospel is about this big picture of yeah. King Jesus and everything that Jesus wants to inbreak his kingdom into this world. And yeah. it is getting wrapped up in that kingdom is by which you are saved. The gospel right. is the power unto salvation. It is not a plan of how you get salvation that that's what happens when other people write your books 
<laughs> Oof. Now, no, also, like, MacArthur, the way he... I also just realized that I think MacArthur can't read very well because in what he also said regarding NT Wright that he has no idea what NT Wright's even talking about. He can't even understand a word that he's reading. So I just think MacArthur has the reading comprehension of a second grader, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> well, I wanted to say real quick that we actually have a professor here at Trinity, a visiting professor, Steve Gregg, who some of you may know, who has a book on this subject that uh, I think that somewhat in line with Chris's views here. Uh, not that I want to saddle him with everything that Steve said, if he hasn't read it, but uh, this is a two volume work empire of the risen sun. And what we've been describing here is, is in, uh, in large part, the substance of the book. And so the gospel is more than just, um, you know, first Corinthians 15's first few, you know, the, the three and following the, the death, burial and resurrection, um, it, it's more than just this or that it, it, there's more to it and a good book like this one and the kind of topics that Chris was discussing helped to draw out how, how that looks and how, uh, and this book is pretty good. It almost becomes a systematic theology, but with the kingdom in mind, going through the different aspects of theology and how the kingdom, uh, paradigm makes sense of those coming through in the gospels. So I just wanted to mention that since we did have it here. Yeah. And to pick up on what you said about First Corinthians three fifteen, like I said, the gospel is that by which we're saved, as opposed to here's a plan to save people. Um, <clears throat> it, it, the, the gospel of the kingdom is that which you get up in. And when Paul says a first import uh, in First Corinthians number one, that doesn't mean of only importance. But second, if you just say that Christ died and was buried and was raised, you leave out key phrases that Paul puts in there, which is in accordance with the scriptures in accordance mm-hmm. with the scriptures. And what that means in accordance with the scriptures is the full sweep of the scriptures that testify that are that, that Jesus recapitulates as the true Israel, the story, the long story of Israel where Jesus succeeds, where Israel failed uh, to, to honor the covenant. Jesus takes that on himself. And we'll get into more of that in Romans five. But so y- you may think, death, burial, resurrection, and leave out the in accordance with the scriptures, that that's the only thing that is of importance. But why is Jesus's death, burial, resurrection important? Because it's in accordance with the scriptures. And the only way his death, burial, resurrection matters is that the scriptures testified to him, right? Paul says that in this letter, in chapter three, uh, testified by the law and the prophets, that, that Jesus's life had to be such that his death, resurrection, and uh, death, burial, and resurrection can be that by which all of this is possible. So um, Chris was here uh, when we covered all this. Um, and if anybody wasn't here when we covered all this a few weeks ago, I think that we we get a pretty good idea of what the gospel is when, you know, when we just work our way through uh, Paul's opening. So, you know, Paul opens up, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, verse two, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So the the gospel was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. Um, you know, we keep reading. We get down uh, to ver- uh, the verse nine. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son. Good news is about his son. Uh, and then, of course, we come to to verse uh, 16, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it 
is the power of God for salvation to everyone first, to the Jew, um, to the Jew, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So, so the gospel, like I said, was something testified in the Old Testament by by the prophets. Uh, it's about uh, Jesus, um, and it's also the a force. It's also the power in which God reveals His justice. And so I think that Paul has defined and is continuing to define the gospel. And nowhere do we see the gospel in, in, in any of these reduced down or truncated down to simply justification by faith. Right. I think when we get into the discussion of justification by faith, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I, I don't want to jump ahead, but, yeah, justif- yeah. but justification by faith is really the the man is justified, the one who has faith, whether you're Jew or Greek. That's that's what Paul's going on about in uh, Romans three, and so that's that's the big unifier, right? Yeah. Uh, but but the good news is not that you're justified by faith alone. The good news is that King Jesus has arrived, and he's you know uh, in breaking and defeating the cosmic powers, and that he's wrapping gathering up the people who go and you know, proclaim the message to, to participate in, in this kingdom. And of course, uh, I, I know you weren't here last week when we went on a whole thing about the obedience to, uh, uh, the obedience of faith and what that means. But, uh, Chris, I know you want to kind of unpack that a little bit tonight because that, that plays into the statements that follow. And in fact, he, he goes back to this in Romans 15. So they, they, they hang, the book of Romans hangs between this phrase, obedience of faith. Exactly. Exactly. And what I see in that is the inference of participation, you know, uh, not simply, you know, this, you know, get your Willy Wonka ticket so that you end up in, you know, apocalyptically end up in with God. But um, Hey, you now can participate too, because this isn't simply a, a message of rescue. It's also a message of, of participation to spread this good news message, whether you're thinking about it from the, from the uh, cultural concept of reciprocity and you making the name great of your patron, which it seems like Paul kind of alludes some of that in like Romans uh, like five and six, I think, or it's, um, you know, traditionally what the Jews were supposed to be doing as, as representatives of Yahweh's on earth, this nation of priests, there was this community of people that constituted God's presence on this earth through the way that they live righteousness and Paul is saying something to to some degree, something controversial, because now people who previously would have had to um, convert to Judaism in order for in order for them to participate in this covenant community of people, they're now being allowed to being allowed to um, come in and become covenant members without the traditional covenantal signs of circumcision or dietary or um, these other elements of feast festivals that would traditionally have been prerequisites for them to participate in this covenantal uh, community, which, you know, was was a community that experienced God's flourishing. God gave them the power to get wealth traditionally when they were in the land. They were this land flowing with milk and honey that he gave them. So, yeah, there's a lot of social, practical, real world implications embedded in all of this. And Paul isn't, you know, Paul isn't uh, lost on it. Paul is speaking in light of those things. So, yeah, when he's talking about bringing people into obedience to the gospel, he's saying something, I think, very dynamic. Amen. (laughs) 
So uh, one last little point on this section, and then we'll we'll uh, go to the last slide, and we'll go through that real quick, just laid out. Uh, what do y'all think he means by uh, faith from faith to faith? The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Uh, some of the options are from the Jewish faith, as in like the religion, the pattern of religion to the Christian faith. Uh, some people say from faith to faith is a way of emphasizing by faith alone. Uh, it's just from faith to faith. It's start to finish faith. Uh, talking about your subjective faith. Uh, some people say, well, it's God or Christ's faithfulness from start to finish. And then the final option would be Paul means from faith to faith, meaning God or Christ's faithfulness to the believer's faithfulness. You know, tying back to the everyone who believes and uh, that's what it, that's what he meant. The righteousness got revealed from faith, from his faithfulness to those who believe their faithfulness. Which which one of those four options are you guys uh, mostly on board with? Well, do you want to explain more background for this? Because well, I mean, B of course is is a uh, kind of that into that wheelhouse of Lutheran tradition of Paul is emphasizing faith. Uh, Paul is pulling. Paul is pulling from what Habakkuk is it well that's the very next verse where he where where there's a lot of little sticky stuff that our audience might be interested in that we want to get into but it plays get, into the question of faith or faithfulness right right but it's from faith from faith to faith right so what what, what is Paul meaning there and I'm thinking I, I lean towards the D option yeah well that's uh, the one I, I told you before the show tonight that I also think is yeah. correct. Yeah. I like C and D, but um, you know I was literally like I'm somewhere between C and D, so I'm glad yeah. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, these are not hills I die on because these are all just I mean, you know, there's so many different scholars that are arguing for basically these four things. Uh A is probably the smallest minority. Um, and so I don't I don't really think that that's what he's but I mean, some people would say first to the Jew, then to the Greek. And then this is from the from this is the natural progression of God's righteousness from the Jewish thing to the Christian thing. Um, I see that. I, don't I think do think we crazy. definitely I do think we definitely need to have God's faith, like uh, faithfulness or pistis, if you will, in mm. view here because of Habakkuk 2 4. Because if you get into like the Septuagint translations, it always is doing like my as in God's faith pistis. So I think that as he's quoting or referencing Habakkuk two four, that's definitely what's in mind over here as he's talking about. It. So I don't, I don't think this faith alone or um, yeah. Jewish faith to Christian faith really fits the bill at all. I think that God's faithfulness has to be in line here, which goes back to covenant faithfulness with righteousness. Ha! Take it, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm thinking D, but like I said, and, and the reason is because in verse seven, sixteen, seventeen, you have them both going on. You know, uh, to everyone who believes, right? So that 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 has that's the still the pistis uh, the pistis word group, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from from faith to faith. So I'm saying from God's faithfulness to uh, our faithfulness to everyone who believes. So I, I I think Paul, because of the way he paraphrases Habakkuk two four. So let's go to that because that might help give us clarity. Uh, on the last slide, because Paul, this is uh, him echoing. He, well, he, he's already echoed Old Testament stuff, but but here's is like the first he introduces it with an introductory formula. You know, as it is written, 
but he doesn't exactly quote it from the codices of the LXX that we have. There's the, the codices A and C say uh, my, as in God's righteous one, uh, shall live by faith or faithfulness. The codices S and W say the righteous one will live by God's or my God, meaning in context, God's faithfulness. Paul doesn't directly translate the Hebrew. So if you go to the Masoretic text, it says the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. And it's just kind of there. But in Romans 1, uh, 17 and Galatians 3, 11, it's just the righteous one will live by faith. And in Hebrews 10, 38, which I don't know if anyone here takes a Pauline author. I don't, but I, I don't know. Um, but whatever it is, uh, the use of Habakkuk, for there is the righteous one shall live by faith and if he draws back i will have no pleasure in him so obviously the author of hebrews sees it as the believer faith and i i lean towards this verse being a reference to the believer's faith because he doesn't exactly state one way or the other but i think there's no reason to insert that here going back to the obedience of faith statement and if you're going from from uh God's righteous or God's faithfulness to the believer's faithfulness of anyone who believes, whether Jew or Greek, I'm thinking saying, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And I think he's picking up on the tradition. That's the same as the, the uh, Hebrews author's tradition uh, that they will live by faith that ties in well with the obedience of faith. And um, you know, what is it? What, not only what, whose faith are whose whose faith are we talking about, but also the question of what is meant by live here, and what is meant by righteous one. Uh, if it's talking about the believer, is that a merely forensic declaration of righteousness? Is it the imputation of the alien righteousness of Christ to the believer? Is it the Catholic view mm-hmm. of an infusion of an actual righteousness? Is it a transformative sort of righteousness or is it some combination or, or how do we all unpack all that in the last few minutes that we have in the show? <laughs> I well, think transformative. It's going to depend on your understand your, uh, whether your new perspective, a new perspective on Paul, right? Yeah. I didn't, I, I'll, I don't say I just don't take an imputation approach. I think it's yeah. mostly transformative. Yeah, I, I would say a combination of uh, incorporated righteousness and uh, transformative. Uh, God's righteousness, it, 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 I already know preachers will get pissed if if somebody says um, <laughs> that God has to do in order to be. I'm not saying that yeah. he has to do in order to be. What yeah. I'm saying is I believe that Paul is making the argument that God is demonstrating who he is and his, his righteousness is not some static state yeah. uh, or, or some abstraction. Yeah. Uh, God, God's righteousness, his, his, which the, the, um, which the old Testament will also would also pair in a Hinditis with his justice uh, is him making things right. Him setting things right. Including people, including people. The believers, but, but also all of creation. Yeah, I, I think I think definitely forensic. I, I do think it's a declaration, but I, I shy away from the imputation thing. I, I'm not on board with that because what I and I don't necessarily think that it's a substance. That righteousness is a goo in which you are infused with. I think when God declares you to be a thing, you are 
that thing. And yeah. so that's why Paul can say, use the members of your bodies as weapons for righteousness, mm-hmm. right? So just to that, yeah, get to that in chapter six. So I, I think a combination of the declaration, but I do think, and I think Michael Byrd is absolutely right on this when he pushes back against Michael Horton uh, on, on the idea uh, that it's purely forensic because Paul does speak of righteousness in a transformative sort of way that this righteousness does something to you. And so when God declares you to be the thing, that you're in the right, that you're, or if you want to see it as an acquittal, fine, not guilty, whatever. Um, but when God declares you to be a thing, you are uh, in the already not yet worldview of Paul, you are becoming that thing. Uh, if, if we're not going to say you are already without the not yet. So in, in, there is sanctification, to use that language, transformative language associated with righteousness that I think that those two, for me, sit together the both as a combination of is a declaration, but the declaration does something to you. It's transformative. I agree with Pritchett. I think that's right. I I, I think that um, the forensic aspect of it is obviously true. And I, I, uh, but I was going to throw up here a second ago, Spartan theology, because I know some of you guys know him says, actually, never mind. He had said D. He said, I think I'm more in line with C. It's all about the faithfulness of Christ. No comment. Well, that's fine. I think it's, I think it's, uh, I, I think he was going back to the other slide there. Um, but I, I think that this is, oh, it, okay. yeah, uh, I think he's talking about God's Christ faithfulness to the believers, but he was saying God's Christ, uh, God's faithfulness from beginning to end. Uh, I, I'm more of the D guy. And I, I think um, I think with what does Paul mean by live? I, I, I don't necessarily mean he, he. I think it's more than just eternal life, but I don't think it's less. So I'm one of those both and as a, what, what he what he says here is a both and you will live in the present in anticipation of the future. So it is eternal life. You'll live eternally, but but that life starts now in the here and now. So I, I don't I'm not trying to saddle it with more freight than it than it should have. I think that when Paul says you will live by faith, I, I believe that, that that eternal life now, the, the life that you'll have in the kingdom to come or, you know, is in the kingdom now. So th- those are my thoughts. It's been a long stream. Yes, it has. Well, it's I want to hear. Else, I want to hear what everyone else has to say about uh, Habakkuk two four and whether or not it's talking about. Uh, Do y'all have anything else to say? Are the righteous ones being the ones that God has declared right? The, the believers are to live by faith, or is it talking about God's will live by God's faith? What do you think about all of that? Given the fact that Paul doesn't quote anything that we know. I, I don't think Paul is a bad exegete. I'll say that, or a scripture twister. Well, no, but I, I, do, do you think that he's in line with the tradition that the Hebrews uh, author would be, where they take it to mean uh, the righteous, the, the the believer, for example? It's talking. It's not talking about we will live by God's faithfulness or, or righteousness, but that the believers will live by that. And then, of course, the author of Hebrews goes on to say, you know. Um, but if I take his pleasure and all that, so 
I thought we already agreed that we liked D, God's Christ's faithfulness to believers' faithfulness. Yeah, I know, but what is what is the specific statement in Habakkuk 2 4? Who is the one that will live by faith? Are we living by God's faithfulness or are, are we to oh. the righteous one is the believer to living by will live by the faith or even the obedience of faith? Well, doesn't Paul just kind of avoid using the pronoun here? <laughs> like, so that's where the debate actually comes in. Right, because um, he didn't quote anything that we know. Of, right? <laughs> he didn't translate it directly from the Hebrew himself. The, domi- the dominant uh, Septuagint version or Greek translation is it's God's faithfulness. But if you go into the other, it's the righteous persons. Uh, if you go into Masoretic text, it looks like. So, I, I don't know. Uh, Bob's your uncle. That's why I go with D. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I would I would go with D, uh, D as well. Um, and I, you know, I think that Paul can, um, I think that Paul can use the text. Uh, I mean, you have Midrash, you have Pesher. Uh, he he can use the text in different ways. He he doesn't have to necessarily uh give us a, a a very wooden exegesis of what he's doing he can give us in the word uh the words of uh uh james white the apostolic interpretation well i mean and well in ephesians i mean he completely reverses the psalms in ephesians 4 is like instead of receiving gifts he he gave gifts right yeah so so i mean there's a lot of wiggle room uh with with that so Nick says Campbell might be right that Habakkuk 2.4 refers to Christ's faithfulness. It has some teeth. Well, they all have some teeth or we wouldn't be talking about the various options in the commentaries. Yeah, and he also said a minute ago, what did we decide on the righteousness of God? How badly did I lose? No, we're like, we're like, we tell us more. I'm, I'm like, we're ready to hear you more on this. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm like, I, I, I'm not convinced, but I can be convinced, but I'm not convinced. You know, we just have to hash it out. Yeah, the question here from the audience is Christ's faithfulness to our faithfulness or to our faith? Yeah, I mean, God or Christ's faithfulness, uh, it's not clear in the text. So it could one of the way to read that is from faith to faith being either God or Christ's faithfulness to our faithfulness or our faith. So... Uh, that that's one possible way, and I think that probably God. Um, but you can, as a Trinitarian, you can include Christ in that. Uh, so I just say God's faith to our faith is from from faith to faith. And then my position is the righteous shall live by faith. Is talking about the one that God has declared righteous as the Christian believer is to live by uh, shall live by faith, and by live that is the now and not yet eternal life. Yes, but also live by faith in the now and the obedience of faith that Paul hangs that frames the, the letter around. I, I would, I would just, um, yeah, my, my computer overheated for a minute there. And so, um, I had to take it in the garage and let it cool off. Um, okay. cause it's cold here in Michigan. That's it. Um, yeah, I think when Matthew, um, was mentioning, you know, this, the Diakosu, you know, this Greek, how they had kind of merged righteousness, justice. And so here we have this sort of potential word planner. Oh, Douglas Harkin, uh, wrote uh, like quasi commentary on the book of Romans, considering if you um, like early Latin translations from the Greek to the Latin translated this passage, this, this uh, Romans one seventeen from just from justice to, uh, to justia, 
you know, in other words, it more emphasized the justice than the righteousness. And he's not necessarily um, advocating for it to be justice, but to say that there's a broader implication that's being made when, when, when you consider it's potentially talking about the justice of God and not just the righteousness of God, you know, not to, well, not to throw another monkey wrench in right at the last second. And I don't have an answer for that. I just found it to be intriguing, you know, that he's like, you know, highlighting such a uh, potential notion. Well, one of the joys about exploring texts and ideas is you don't have to be, you can sit lightly to what you believe while still being open to be convinced with new data. And so exploring all of these options in a, in a public way like this, I think is helpful for people to see that there's all these ideas and we can sit closer to some as opposed to others, but still have a willingness to, to hash it out and, and, and see where we're going with this. And that's why I think shows like this are important to where we have a whole full panel of people to bounce ideas around and try to get a fuller understanding of the text. Well, I'm right. Of course you are. You with your apostolic interpretation. That's right. From before the foundation <laughs> of the world. The apostolic interpretation. <laughs> Paul's allowed to misread his Bible, and that means we can too. What, 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 what Dr. White means by the apostolic interpretation is means my opinion of what the apostolic interpretation is. No, no. He means what you know, his apostle John Calvin said. Get it right. Oh, come on. I'm trying to be as nice as I can he by taking a punch, punch, and you're just taking a punch. I, I, he can say all the stuff he wants about me. I'm a man-centered synergist. You know, I got no problem with that. I can, do, I can no, take no, it if he wants to do it. He's he to build edition. Has, has, he has he said anything about you, Nick, before? Oh, he, he doesn't know I exist, thank God. If he I did, just, he'd come after me. Come I just hope I'm, I just, I just I'm, hope not, I'm not the only one that notices that, that uh, James White is morphing into John Calvin. Like yeah. he's he's leaning into that look really hard. He's, he's trying like, to get that beard going. Yeah, no, but but when you hear people say phrases Woo! like he knows who I am, he's he's not very impressed with me. We all heard him say that. But uh, it used to be in the intro of Trinity Radio. But when people say in general things like the apostolic interpretation is X, Y, and Z, what they are really saying is my opinion that the apostolic interpretation is X, Y, Z because. That's 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 one possibility. There are other possibilities that may disagree with your possibility. So, you know, uh, it, it's similar to the the Bible clearly says, but does it clearly say? Because here we are, the Bible clearly does say something, but what does it clearly mean? And that's where the debate happens. So we, everyone agrees on what the text says. It's what does the text mean when it says what it says? That's the issue. Let me tell you well, something, yeah, uh, Doctor Hunter. Covenant. Yes, What's the name of that seminary that he teaches at, uh, Nick? Grace Bible Theological Seminary, I think. Look, that's that's y'all's competition. It's time to start doing some hit pieces on them. <laughs> no, no, they're 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 uh, they're. they're well, fine. I get the uh, the, I duck, think uh, the James the White, mage, the Machen. You know, where they're all wearing suits and it's gray leather, and they're like. We look like we're imitating 1920s. No, not. Would you like we are us? not in competition listen, with the school in Conway, now. Arkansas, which is a lovely city. We are not in competition with Dr. White. We just disagree with his views. But yeah. one of the things that I will say oh, is nice. that our seminary nice. is like way better. And if you have a seminary with the word grace in it and you never say a word in any of your literature or any of your podcasts about patron-client reciprocity, you really 
have a understanding of what grace in the Bible means. That's all I'm going to say. Well, I wanted to say, I wanted to say that, um, and you all are going to expect, I would say something like this, but I mean it, uh, Dr. White has certainly had comments about us before. And obviously we're on the different side of a lot of things, but the truth is he has done many incredible things for the kingdom. I praise God for that. Me too. Um, I would treat him like uh, a scholar and a gentleman if he was standing before me and with respect, but more than that, I treat him as a brother. I'm, Absolutely. I think, I think the thing, I think that, that uh, I think there are people who are saved today who wouldn't have been saved um, by, yes. in, in the same way if it weren't for James White. I think God may have used somebody else, but he used James White, and I praise God for that. And um, And I admire him and learn a lot from him in various areas. Now, obviously, I have deep uh, issues with certain aspects of his theology, and I think he's flat wrong. But I, but I love him. Yeah, I, I love I, Pritchett too. Pritchett thinks I'm saying, but I, I still I, like Pritchett. I, I agree with some of the things that you said, but my mouth is bleeding from <laughs> from, from biting my tongue. Bro, same. Let it bleed, bro. Let it bleed, guys. Yeah, let it bleed. Yeah, have we made it to the end of the stream, Pritchett. Yeah, let's have everybody go around real quick and give some summary thoughts on this passage, and then we'll talk about. Uh, next week and what everyone's got coming up. So around the horn. I'll start. Okay. I, I thought this was fantastic. I hope that people will come back to this as a resource when they preach through the book of Romans and when they teach through it, or even just for their own personal study, but the way we've done it here, it, it may be that really what this becomes is a resource for not for Bible nerds and for pastors and people like that. And I think that is very important because then those pastors take that information and preach it in the pulpit in ways that uh, translate some of what we've said to um, people who don't spend their time listening to two hours of stream like this. Uh, but, uh, so I think it has a great value. I think, um, this has confirmed some of what I already thought about some of these things. Um, I usually think about stuff that I don't understand what, whatever Pritchett tells me. Um, and he and Nick have, have been able to fight here, which has thrown my entire, uh, understanding of these things into complete disarray because I don't know which one of them's right. Uh, but I, I actually think we, we saw some, some good stuff there. Now, in the end, I want to say that. When we go back to what we said at the beginning, you saw as we went through this thing how much the honor-shame stuff comes up. And, of course, we don't want to overplay it, and sometimes it's not uh, the best explanation of what's going on. But I think, as I said at the beginning, when you go to I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that just sings a whole lot more when you have some of this information under your belt. Uh, Wes, what about you? Wes, well, can, I, can I, I go first? I, I'm afraid my computer going to heat up again. Yes, go out ahead, brother. I'm going to be really <laughs> short. So yeah, uh, I echo everything that uh, Braxton uh, just said, and uh, I just wanted to give one correction. I said Douglas Harkin, and it's Douglas Harrick. I'm dyslexic, and my brain often botches names. So you know, I, you thought of it, and I caught it. I don't think anybody else did. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I didn't catch it. Good As the book. elders uh, of the panel. Chris, I, I, I can relate. I, my brain fries out too. Yeah, Pritchett's going to have to leave in a second to go walk his his, uh, his god. Uh, dog, sorry. <laughs> All right, Wes. All right. Uh, well, one, I love the discourse between um, Pritchett and Nick and whenever yeah. there is actually disagreement among the pan panel because one, it shows that we're not a bunch of yes men who are all just because I already know that the 
we will get accusations of that from time to time from like uh, some of our, you already mentioned James White, so some of our Reformed brothers and sisters. But I think it also shows kind of in mission with the church split with what we do, which is unity and diversity of thought, having intellectual toughness to be able to have these sorts of discourses. Um, and that's very important. It's important for Christian growth. It's important for theological understanding. And it's the only way I think that we can really truly be a proper resource to other people is if we learn how to challenge ourselves by being challenged and challenging one another. The other thing is, is of course, I think things to keep in mind is definitely what we talked about with the gospel and salvation, that it is not just a, a forensic thing that you're declared something. It is also something that is holistic in the sense that it is already saved and that it's something that you are being saved from now. And that's something you're being saved unto to continue to live in. There's a lot more unto salvation, which is living the kingdom and eventually the re- great resurrection at the new creation. So I think these are all really important aspects to consider. And I'm looking forward to getting even further into some of the chapters that are my babies, in which case Nick will have to sit down and let me do all the talking. Sit down. Nick, what are your summative thoughts? <laughs> Nick? Uh, so I would say that What are you wonder what his summative thoughts are? <laughs> what are your thoughts on 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 uh, the righteousness of God? Do you take uh, Dad Dad's correct view or mean angry Uncle Pritchett's view, uh, or Matt Dad Uncle Dad, right? Matt's view? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that yeah. settles it then. Yeah. Uh, all, all this to say, I'll, I'll make it quick. Um, the, the gospel, uh, as we see in Romans, is amazingly pastoral. Paul is writing to a beleaguered church. He's writing to a church that. Uh, looks like a small group of folks living under the, the paradigm of, well, Nazism. You know, this imperial power, this the greatest military might you will ever see on the planet for its time. And so I think uh, I, I think we need to be aware of that when we preach uh, Romans through all through all of this time. We are looking at Paul engaged in missional work. We are watching him engaged in theodicy. We're watching him engaged in the declaration of Jesus Christ being Lord. We're watching him go after the Roman empire and offer a countercultural ethic that is infused by the spirit. And so, and those are just the few first few verses of Romans and just wait, we'll, we'll get into some really interesting stuff. But at the end of the day, Romans is not meant to be lived out only. It's meant to be preached and proclaimed. And so for those who are preachers and ministers and servants of the word, Romans is for you and also for your church and also for the whole world. So go out with the love of Christ and the reconciliation of the spirit to empower all to serve the one Lord Jesus Christ with the confidence and faith of little children. Man, that was, that was beautiful. I feel like, I almost feel like part of that's what Pass the plate. Like Pass the plate leader. right now. Pass the plate. <laughs> I feel like you MJ. say that at the end of every service or something. <laughs> MJ, Nick, Nick is sermonized if you don't watch it. <laughs> And another thing, my my second point is. (laughs) All right. So I have been blown away um, just by the richness uh, of this text. And we haven't even got into all of it. Like we we're still barely, you know, maybe halfway through chapter one. Uh, But as a person who, you know, kind of grew up a little bit word of faith where this wasn't even touched because you know how you gonna raise an offering off of that right 
you know, how you gonna how you gonna how you gonna sow a seed off of Paul's uh, uh, opening? But but you could you could preach a sermon uh, right off the first few verses because it's just packed with so much rich uh, information about who Jesus is and what God has done through Jesus. Um, and so this has truly been a blessing uh, and an honor to uh, be sharpened by just uh, going into the word of God. And I know that it's been, I know that it's blessing me. So I'm pretty sure it's blessing other folks and just happy to be uh, participating uh, on the channel. Well, we're thrilled to have all you guys. Amen. My, my, my final thought is, Bringing it back around to what my dear co-host, uh, the the Batman to my Robin, uh, said about I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We we live in a culture where people want to heap shame on those who proclaim the gospel. Uh, it, you know, now as it was then, and so when Paul says I am not ashamed of the gospel, he is issuing a challenge to what the broader culture finds to be shameful and sticking it right out there that he is not ashamed of it and living that out with his gospel that blows away all of the cultural distinctions that you could make. And it blows away all of the ethnic distinctions that you could make. And we live in a culture where identity is important to people hashing out the way that they identify themselves. And the gospel is for everyone who believes and the reason why Paul is trying to unify a church around the gospel is because even though we are all one in Christ, as Paul points out in Galatians 3, those distinctions don't go away, and they also do create challenges within the church. But it is important now, as it was then, for even though we recognize our distinctions and wherever you are on the socioeconomic cultural uh, plane or on the ethnic plane, we have to be unified for Christ and to spread his gospel that we should be unashamed of. And with that, I will let Braxton take us out in the traditional manner in which he does. But before he does that, I just want to say tune in next week for Braxton's favorite section of Romans, where Paul rips the Gentiles a new one. Yeah. 18. And presuppositionalists. <laughs> well, we'll get into that next week. I'll have to think about that when it comes time for a thumb and title. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next time on Trinity. Wait for it. Radio. I can't I can't leave the stream. <laughs>